Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, I found myself saying over the weekend, I wish we could go back to the days before NIL when there was parody in college football. Don't, <laughs> don't you long for those days? Yeah, you know, Yale winning like 20 straight titles, just the good old days of college football. <laughs> just parody, everybody's on the same level. No, I'm, I'm of course talking about the Nick Saban comment that he had on, on Feinbaum wherein he made everybody do the old, uh, what's, what's the gif where you do like the, um, was it was it the the press secretary who who had like that look of of like wait a minute he said what yes 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 like yeah that that uh because it wasn't it wasn't Sean Spicer was it no I think I know. you're just talking about the guy who is like a like a ra- I think that's a random internet guy I know what you're talking about oh that's just a random internet yeah. guy oh it looked like the press secretary all right shows what happened. <laughs> that's, that's, actually, why, that's why I was like what that's why we don't get into politics on this show <laughs> uh, lots of football things to be able to get into today i know this is a really really long pod and apologies if you're one of those people that's like oh i like all my pods an hour and 20 minutes sorry this is not the pod for you i figured whatever we're doing we're doing one a week and I, I, we do have a great show lined up because we've got two awesome interviews former georgia running back keith marshall and fox sports is rj young they're going to join us in a little bit here and we're going to talk coffee in figuring out oh, lots yes. and lots of takes about that but first well um i feel like we should have some sort of a drum roll for this sorry that's a b i've been looking at spelling b stuff all day yeah (laughs) uh b's drums two different things entirely but i like where your head's at i like where your head's at the 2022 all bang the drum team yes sir that's what what i want to be able to get into today and look i I love putting this together i do because I, I do so many predictions and whatnot. By the way, we're gonna do playoff predictions next week. Stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm. We're gonna see if we can call our shot a little bit. But the beauty of the All Bang the Drum team, which we did last year for the first time, so this is the second inaugural All Bang the Drum team. The beauty is that this isn't necessarily about predicting who will be first team All SEC, right? Like it's guys that I wanna to go to bat for. Right. For one reason or another, I want to lead their bandwagon. At the same time, if you're some fourth stringer without a path to playing time, I'm probably not banging the drum for you because that's falling on deaf ears and what's the point of that? So we have some, in which case the world's your oyster. Yeah, I mean, Stetson, Stetson <laughs> at this time last year wouldn't have been a guy that I banged the drum for. Exactly. Just wouldn't have been. Would have been third stringer at, at the time last year. So there, there are some caveats that we need to get to. And speaking of, of the quarterbacks, I'm not going to do quarterbacks on the all the drum team. Um, just we talk so much about them, and, and I feel like that's kind of its own separate thing. I always am going to talk about quarterbacks that I'm high on anyway, so I, we can do that another time. Uh, no first-team all-SEC selections from last year. Those guys don't need me banging the drum on their behalf. And we're going to stick to one player per team, which is that's what we did last year as well. So you don't feel like I'm giving more love to one team and not the other. We're going to make it as fair as humanly possible. One player, each team, no quarterbacks, no first team, all SEC selections from last year. Does that make sense? We're good to go. Yes. All right. Let's start with Alabama. Jameer Gibbs, the Georgia Tech transfer. I do one bold prediction for every SEC offense, like pretty early in the offseason, so we can kind of get out ahead of it. The one that I settled on for Bama was Jameer Gibbs racking up 2,000 scrimmage yards. That's a lot. Yeah, whole lot. I think that he is going to be the next great Bama back. 
and maybe not historically from like a career standpoint, because if he's a one and done, then he won't get held in the same regard as a Derrick Henry or a Najee Harris or a Mark Ingram, those guys. But nonetheless, I think he's going to be fantastic. And it's not a slight to the likes of Trey Sanders, Roydell Williams, or Jason McClellan to say that I think Gibbs is kind of is going to be better than all of them. But I think even if they stay healthy, Gibbs is the clear best player early in the season among those guys, and he is going to covet that workload. I am not worried about like his size. I don't care that he's not some like 225 pound battering ram or anything like that. He averaged 15 touches per game. He was sixth in the ACC in total scrimmage touches last year. So why am I so high on him? It's 2022. Got to be able to catch passes if you're if you're a tailback playing in a modern offense, which Alabama has. Mm-hmm. Gibbs is already at an NFL level as a pass catcher. What's the best way to stay relevant as a running back on a three-win team? Catch passes. Yep. Pretty simple, right? He had PFF's highest receiving grade among running backs. Keep in mind that he is playing in an offense now with Bryce Young. I think he's going to see a lot of three-man fronts against Bama. That's that's going to be the, the blueprint. We can't let Bryce Young beat us. His yards before first contact are going to be insane, which is a really good combination for a guy that you aren't able to arm tackle very much. I think getting to 2,000 scrimmage yards is very reachable for him. When you kind of break it down, you're like, all right, if you think Alabama's going to go to a national championship, play 15-game season, it's 133 scrimmage yards per game. That seems doable with how Bill O'Brien typically uses his backs. Brian Robinson was 361 yards away from 2000, and he was not a home run hitter. He was not nearly as good as Gibbs as a pass catcher, and he was banged up down the stretch. No disrespect to Brian Robinson, but I just think that Gibbs has so many things working in his favor. I think he hits that 2,000-yard scrimmage, 2,000 yards from scrimmage mark for an Alabama team that plays in a national championship. A little bit of a teaser for playoff predictions for next week. Uh, yeah, real quick on him. I had like this rant off air like for like a good 10 minutes one day about just like the ultimate finesse that Alabama has is they've made me root for them. And like you look at this Alabama team coming up and it's like Bryce Young, Will Anderson, this guy Javier Gibbs. I was just sitting here like screaming about like the receivers that are coming in and like Javier Gibbs. I was like, oh yeah, I'm sure this guy is like a 4.0 guy who's like a genius and probably has like this whole story behind him. And it's crazy, man, because you look at kind of this Alabama team and the guys they've added and like what this roster starts to look like. And it's like, it's just a bunch of lads. It's a guy, a bunch of guys you want to root for. This absolutely would have been my guy uh, for bang the, drum te- dr- bang the Drum team. And I think that, you know, it's a guy that it's going to be a great story. I think because Alabama can give you exactly what you put into it. And I think that he's a guy who came out of nowhere. You know what I'm saying? Like you said, three win team, pass catching back. And he could be a guy who very well, you know, here's his name called for the NFL draft. And we're going to be able to look back and say, wow, look at all these great things Alabama did for him. And I hate it. It infuriates me. That's it. <laughs> There's, I was waiting for that, 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 that lie. And I hate it. It just infuriates me. It was just, me. just you know, they're, they're the empire. They also have these nice little stories. Get more people that I hate on this team. You know, bring me bring me back Rolando McClain. That's who I want. I want somebody I can just hate when I play him. And uh, that's it. That's I'm tired of these feel-good Bama stories. These good dudes are bringing in. <laughs> Alabama needs a Grayson Allen. Exactly. They exactly need a Grayson Allen where I could just write it all off in my mind, put all my hatred together, and not root for these awesome stories. Don't think anybody would have predicted Grayson Allen's name coming up in a a Jameer Gibbs uh, rant, but here we are. That's what (laughs) he called the the podcast. No bat talk today, sadly. So tune in for positive vibes. That'll be next Positive vibes only. Yes, absolutely. All right, Arkansas. Um, Dominique Johnson. 
I, I'm not just going to make this an all running back thing. Um, I realize we've started off with two running backs and we've got more running backs on the way. But the the Arkansas back backfield, just like pick your poison with it. You want to go with the speed guy, AJ Green. You want to go with the guy with a little bit of speed, a little bit of power, Rocket Sanders, also an all-name team guy. <laughs> you want to go with the dude who's just hell to bring down, of course, one of our favorite lads in the SEC, KJ Jefferson. I should probably add Dominique Johnson to that group because he is indeed hell to bring down. SEC StatCat had the number for him, 3.76 yards after contact. Ooh. That's good. That's real good. Only three SEC returners are better than that, and we'll get to one of them later. Johnson is just such a nice fit in that offense with tempo. You need that variety. Can you imagine being gassed in the fourth quarter, and then you see Johnson come in, and you're on the defensive line thinking, I've got to take down this 230-pound dude in an up-tempo offense? That sucks. No thanks. Don't want to sign up for that. Johnson's most impressive numbers will be his efficiency and the yards after contact. When Arkansas is potentially running that package that I want them to run in the fourth quarter with Malik Hornsby, I would love to see him paired up with Dominique Johnson. I think that would be a really fun way to kind of do the thunder and lightning duo and to have them on the field at the same time instead of having multiple backs on the same on the field at the same time, you can kind of do it with your quarterback and with your running back. Dominique Johnson is a guy that I think you're going to see like have one of these runs where he breaks like four tackles and Will's like, oh my God, this is this is my guy. <laughs> this is I'm my in guy, his corner. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay, non-running back. For Auburn, I've got Tyler Fromm. I teased it before that he was going to be an all bang the drum team guy. Um, I've mentioned this before as well. My older brother, Ryan, who we've had on this podcast, friend of the show, star athlete in high school. He was an all-state first baseman. He broke our school RBI record. Um, and he was actually better as a basketball player for most of high school, and he was an all-area guy. Ryan excelled, and I, I lived in his shadow for a really long time. Um, I wasn't wired the way that he was from a work ethic standpoint, and as we'll discuss later, there's only so much I could do with my 5'8 frame. So why do I say this, Will? I side with younger brothers like Tyler Fromm. <laughs> Every time he touches the football, it's in the announcer notes. Hey, it's Jake Fromm's younger brother. Even when the shock wore off of that ridiculous Bo Nix play that he made at Death Valley last year, I didn't wake up choosing violence, Will, I promise. What that. was the... Okay, oh. fine. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> you said nice things about Alabama. I've said mean things about LSU. I'm sorry. We didn't need to go there. Didn't need to go there. Um, but that play... People forget Tyler Fromm was on the receiving end of it, and it was only a play that Bo Nix completed because Tyler Fromm kind of kept moving and worked his way back to the quarterback. I I'm pretty sure they said later in the broadcast when looking back on that play that Tyler Fromm was Jake Fromm's younger brother. Okay? Like, even then, he has to hear about it. Mm -hmm. I hate that. True story. Quick little sidebar here. Elementary school president election. Okay. My brother ran when he was in fifth grade and he lost. The following year, I was in fifth grade. I ran mostly just to see if I could right the family's wrong. The election results come in. I was running against like three or four other like pretty popular kids. I, you know who the popular kids are even when you're in elementary school. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so my strategy was to make friends with the kids a grade younger than me. And it worked. So they, they pull all the candidates out of class and into this stairwell for whatever reason to, to let us know before they let the entire school know who won elementary school president. And I'll never forget this. Mrs. Goldsmith, who was literally my fifth grade homeroom teacher, 
she makes this announcement to us in the stairwell and she says, congratulations to our new president, Ryan O. And then she stops no. and says, I'm so sorry. True story. She says, Connor O'Gara is our new class president. Mind you, this was basically the first time in my life that I did something that my brother didn't. <laughs> and I couldn't even get that stinking moment in the stairwell to myself, all right? I am rooting for Tyler Fromm, absolutely. We already said that if he continues to rock the flow, that's gonna be huge for his personal brand to kind of separate from his brother, who I, I think I think Jake Fromm probably had the same exact haircut when he was 12 years old playing in the Little League <laughs> World Series, in case you haven't heard that he did that as well. I hope Tyler gets to be part of an Auburn offense, which actually targets the tight end now. Say what you want about year one of the Brian Harson era. That was one of the few bright spots from an offensive standpoint. I hope that they just run a bunch of 12 person and he gets to become a red zone machine. We are Tyler Fromm supporters through and through. Listen, say what you will, but he's the only Fromm who's beaten LSU. So, just wanted to get that in. Wow. <laughs> you just had that one in the back pocket, did you? started off strong. We love Tyler Fromm. That's very funny. I didn't know which Fromm you were going to make yourself in this comparison, but I, I definitely see that. And good for him. He has a nice, like you said, listen, Auburn, don't say we're pessimists here. You throw to your tight ends. That's what you'll learn from us, so. Good. They will. They will do that plenty this year. We were talking about Georgia throwing to the tight ends. Auburn's going to throw to the tight ends plenty. Okay, Florida. I went with Rashad Torrance. <clears throat> Florida fans, brace yourselves. Oh, boy. Um, I have very low expectations for this defense. It might flirt with 2020 levels of Woodrow Wilson administration bad. Okay. <laughs> Uh, there's there's a player I like from every level. Um, I, I love Brenton Cox on the defensive line. I love Ventrell Miller coming back at linebacker now that he's healthy, and then Torrance in the defensive backfield. He's on this list because I think he's going to be to Florida in year one of the Billy Napier era, what Elante Taylor was to Tennessee in year one of the Josh Heupel era. Here's what I mean by that. He's a guy that you will look back on at the end of the season and you're like, wow, it's a good thing that guy didn't leave with the new regime because it, he was awesome and he covered up a lot of potential weaknesses for this specific group. I think Torrance is going to be that guy. And I'm doing this thing now with, uh, with, with safeties where I try and avoid saying that every single safety I like is a throwback guy. I, I just do that too much. I, I need to stop. I'm, I'm trying to wean myself off it a little bit Listen, here. The bar uh, has got to be like a, a targeting two. If you're willing to throw yourself out there and get kicked out of a game, you're a throwback guy. Yeah. Well, look, now that Smoke Monday is out of the SEC, I feel like I'm, I'm going to be all right there. Mm -hmm. But it's it, it's been something that I, I've struggled with personally, still trying to be able to move past it. And I'm not necessarily going to do that with Torrance because like, I, I think in, in this era, you've got to be able to cover. You've got to be able to cover from a variety of spots if you're playing the, the quote-unquote safety position. And that's that's the, where he's going to make his impact felt. It's not going to be how many times it takes a dude's helmet off or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think he's going to be able to cover, and they're going to need him to cover a lot, especially in a post-Kair Elam world for that secondary. Well, hey, the plus side, we're going plus sides today, Florida. At least if your defense is bad, you won't personally feel like you could fix it. Because I feel like that was kind of the True. issue. Under like under the previous administration, it was like, well, this guy shouldn't be blitzing. This is pretty obvious. He goes wide open. Here, it's like you're in year one of a rebuild. So you can at least see the guys that are going to kind of build the foundation up. And like you said, Torres is going to be one of those guys. So this is the beginning of your story. Two consecutive years of defense that bad. 
I think Florida fans will have some adjusted expectations mm -hmm. and they'll kind of know going in, all right, you know what? It's not going to be there. On the bright side, at least you won't have the most lame duck defensive coordinator that the world has ever known. I can um, think of a word for about week two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, fair. Yeah, Bo Pelini was probably a more lame duck, but at least Bo Pelini was a year one guy and Todd Grantham had been there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think expectations will be a little bit different, but different. But I think Torrance is going to be a reason why they maybe aren't a total dumpster fire on that side of the ball. Okay, Georgia. Kenny McIntosh, the running back. Again, running back heavy. <laughs> We're getting into a lot of running backs here. Not crazy that our guy got arrested for reckless driving at five in the morning. Not a staple of the all bang the drum team. Typically, we, we try and avoid that. I, I would prefer to not have that kind of, you know, on his resume right now. He struggles but with I'll closing give, speed. That's what we know about. Uh, wow. <laughs> you, you've had some right, like just right there. In, not even in the back pocket, in the front pocket mm -hmm. that you've pulled out today. That I'm, I'm impressed. Okay, I'm if impressed, he had gotten man. away, I'd give it a plus. But he didn't. Minus. Come on. We'll move off that. Um, look, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and, and, and hope that it's just kind of a one-time mistake for him. I, I don't want to trigger too many people by saying this, and I know I will. I think that Kenny McIntosh is going to be an even more productive version of James Cook. And here's what I mean by that. That's saying a lot because James Cook this past year kind of put it all together. I mean, he really did. Over a thousand scrimmage yards, double digit touchdowns. He was a key weapon on a title team and he just got drafted in the second round by a Buffalo Bills team who will probably play in a Super Bowl with him as a starter. I think all those things are within reach for him given the role that he's probably going to be in for that team. I'm not saying that Kenny McIntosh is about to check all of those boxes, but I am saying that Todd Munkin is going to cackle, getting to line Kenny McIntosh up all over the place and watching what happens when a team realizes that it's trying to cover him with a linebacker, okay? Drink every time you see Kenny McIntosh running a wheel route. By the way, I've realized just doing this, how much I like saying his full name. I might do that all the time. I like saying Kenny McIntosh. I know that we typically will shorten that to just the last name at this point. I don't care. If you take away the snap minimum for receiving grade for PFF for running backs, um, Kenny McIntosh is your guy. All right, like that's that's him right there. Um, I think that what he's going to be able to do in the passing game is going to be monumental. And, and for what it's worth, McIntosh had 22 catches last year and played 185 snaps. So I'm not really sure why he doesn't really um, why he doesn't reach that that snap minimum on PFF. But whatever, that's kind of beside the point. But think about that: 22 catches in 185 snaps. In terms of catches per total snaps played, that's essentially the same rate that Jordan Addison had last year. When he won the Bolitnikov. All right, I'm not saying he's Jordan, Jordan Addison as a receiver or anything like that, but just in terms of the overall volume and whatnot, that's a hundred catch guy that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. That's for a running back here. That's that's why this is a little bit different. A running back who also averaged six yards per carry and tied with Dominique Johnson with a 3.76 yards after contact average last year. Very, very good. He's got a super high floor, and I love what he and Milton and Edwards are gonna be able to, to do now that it's kind of their time to shine in that offense. So I am very high on Kenny McIntosh. Full name. Gotta say his full name mm -hmm. at all times. Yak is a okay. staple for the all bang the drum. Yards after catch, yards after contact. If you're just out there getting grimy, we're banging the drum. Yes, very much so. Uh, a guy who's gonna have a lot of yak yards probably this season. Tavion Robinson, 
the new receiver at Kentucky. I'm not breaking any news here. Uh, Tavion is an obvious all bang the drum team selection. I'm predicting that there's gonna be a ton of non-Kentucky SEC fans who will see him make a highlight in the first couple of weeks and they'll be like, wait, I thought that Robinson receiver on Kentucky went to the NFL. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Get ready for that. You, listener of this podcast, will be the informed person who says to your buddy, yeah, he did, that was Wandale. It's pretty crazy that Kentucky replaced him with another Power 5 transfer with the last name Robinson, who plays out of the slot. But yeah, this Robinson is Tavion, and he is also excellent. And to be fair, I'm not banging the drum that Tavion is going to be Wandale Robinson 2.0. Not saying that. Mm -hmm. Definitely not as dynamic in space, but I do think that we're going to see Tavion line up a little bit more on the outside. I think he's maybe better on the outside than what you would typically think for a guy south of six feet. I think he should benefit this year even more so than last year at Virginia Tech where he was a leading receiver. I think he's going to benefit from quarterback play with Will Levis. I think he becomes a target machine in that offense and will look up at the end of the year and say, oh, wow, Tavian Robinson was in the top four in the SEC in receiving. Could definitely see that type of thing happening. So yes, another Robinson at receiver at Kentucky that we will bang the drum for. If I say Wandale instead of Tavion this year, forgive me, it's going to happen. It's probably going to happen to you too. All right. Okay. Before we get to the rest of our all bang the drum team, let's take a quick break. Talk about the Saturday down South on YouTube. If you're listening to this podcast, you should be subscribed to Saturday Down South on YouTube. We've got interviews, we've got team breakdowns, we're doing a lot of way too early projection type stuff. There's just a lot of great content on the Saturday Down South YouTube channel. You should go check it out. If you're one of those people that like in the middle of a work day, you're thinking to yourself, I need a little bit of a break. I need like 10 minutes here, just kind of recharge the batteries. I wanna go watch some college football content. Saturday Down South on YouTube. We've got you covered. Go hit that subscribe button right now. LSU, you already know where I'm going with this. You do. I know you do. <laughs> Running back, no Kane. Oh, yes. Um, I'm going to admit that this is one of those examples where it, it's sometimes when I meet someone, I, I don't want to immediately bang the drum for that person forever because there are certain people that I meet that eh, sometimes they maybe that you'll just try and talk yourself into them. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are other people that you come away from meeting and you're like, that, that person has it. I, I, I want more of what they're selling and I'm a believer in whatever they're doing, they're gonna have the right mindset. Noah Kane was the latter for me. He was somebody that when I met him at IMG, um, I went down there 2018 for a story about, um, about him and Trey Sanders and the backfield duo that they had there. Uh, he just kind of stood out to me. And I don't mean that as a disrespect to Trey, but Noah was the guy who just came across so businesslike. And mm -hmm. when you put that together with what you kind of see on the field when he's healthy, it's hard not to be really intrigued by him. I always say with him, this is the guy who, when he was a sophomore in high school, he went to IMG with his dad and literally handed the coach, Kevin Wright, uh, his resume saying, I want to play football here and here are all the reasons why I would be a great fit on and off the field. Think about the 15 year old version of yourself doing something like that. 
that's who Noah Kane was, all right? Like there are certain things that I don't have to worry about with him. He gets it. He understands all of those elements. And unfortunately, he and Trey Sanders both have had injury issues throughout their college career so far, even though they, they were two guys who kind of bought into the IMG deal because they didn't want to be getting 30 carries a game by some high school coach trying to win a state title. Right. His best moments so far uh, when he's been healthy have been that true freshman season at Penn State. I mean, he he was the guy who every Penn State fan was saying, like, make him the starter, get him more touches. He needs to be more involved. And then he gets hurt on the opening drive his sophomore year, season-ending injury, and it's kind of touch and go for him as a junior. I want to see what it looks like for him with better offensive line play and a passing game that has several options that defenses have to worry about. It's not just the one guy. LSU, we've talked about the depth they have at receiver. I think we're going to see very few loaded fronts when you've got so many different guys that you need to be able to cover, and that's going to be different for him if he can stay on the field. I like the idea of he and John Emery, both of whom were highly touted guys coming out of that 2019 class uh, who didn't really have the first three years that I thought they were going to have. I like the idea of them teaming up and forming one of the league's better duos. Will, are you uh, an advocate for Noah Kane becoming, not necessarily an all-ICC guy, but at least becoming a, a very relevant player in year one of the Brian Kelly era? Yeah, so I love him. He's a guy that I texted you almost immediately uh, whenever LSU like, got him in the transfers. Like, what do you know about this guy? And of course, like told me the whole story, sent me the story that you wrote about it and everything. And I, I think he's a... Yeah, I think he's a really interesting dude. I think that he, I would love to see his skill set, honestly, with Daniels. And that's like one of those reasons why, like, I, I could really go either way on the LSU quarterback thing because he's that type of guy that kind of brings that level of explosiveness that, as like a dump off option, he really excites me. You know what I'm saying? Um, and especially as a type of like, not necessarily third down back, but we talked about Jameer Gibbs. I could see him kind of like a similar role to that, just obviously not as, like, I don't want to compare the two. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, at the very least, Noah Kane is, is, should be good in the red zone. Right. I, I don't really worry about that with him. We've seen him kind of able able to operate in those small spaces. And if you don't necessarily want to, to tell uh, Jaden Daniels or Miles Brennan or Garrett Nussmeyer even, we should have Garrett Nussmeyer. <laughs> whoever. Uh, yeah, whoever's starting at LSU. Uh, he's, he's somebody that can get you that short yardage. Right. And, and I think that in those spots, that's where I, I kind of know I'm going to be able to get that from him. I, I want to see the rest of the game and kind of what that looks like in an offense that should be more favorable to his skill set, at least I think. I think I think this guy's a little bit almost overblown at this point, but you gotta say Jack Besh, right? It's just an interesting dude. You see the Besh, I'm from Louisiana mm. shirts he's selling. I think that he's just a day one foxhole guy for LSU. Uh, you talked about him and you know, Butte, kind of the receiving options coming back this year. I think LSU's offense is gonna be really fun. Uh, I say that, you know, I think that a lot, Cotter, has been true once. So <laughs> I, I hope it's going to be fun. That's all I got for you. But yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of lads, a lot of bang the drum guys of with like second chance type of vibes in LSU's offense. LSU's offense was fun in 2013 as well. Let's not discount. You that. know, I always say that. I often I am a burger appreciator, but nobody wants to hear that from me. So Cam Cameron, all right, he he made his presence felt that year. It was it was all the rage, right? Like mm -hmm. let's let's not dismiss that. Jarvis and Odell, it was, it was a fun group. But yeah, you're, you're right, I, and I understand what you're saying. I, I actually, one of my one of my um, bold predictions for SEC offenses, the one I picked for for LSU, was that uh, Keishon Butte wasn't going to be the leading receiver of LSU this year, mm -hmm. and it was going to be like Besh or Brian Thomas or somebody like that. They have no shortage of potential options, and I'll actually get to a little bit more on kind of some of the the pushback, a little bit of my personal pushback on Keishon Butte kind of having this big like All America type season this year. Okay. Mississippi State, 
Jet Johnson, the linebacker. How can you not root for a guy named Jet Johnson, all right? This is, in my opinion, the 2022 version, 2022 version of Grant Morgan. Really similar. Um, <laughs> make, make what you will of that. But I mean it from like, they're both lightly recruited guys mm-hmm. who, they, they barely see the field their first several years there, basically as underclassmen. And then a new regime comes in, they got a new scheme. And then they decide to stay and they then thrive as kind of these versatile linebackers once they finally get playing time. And they're these guys who, even as an inside linebacker, they can cover really well. That's the name of the game. Got to be able to cover. If you're not doing that, sorry, I'm not going to be banging the drum for you. I'm not going to be banging the drum for your Henry Toto. Just not going to happen, right? <laughs> that guy is like the anti-bang the drum guy. Hold the drum. Grab the drumsticks. <laughs> Hold the drum. If he's in your first round mock, um, I'm, I'm not going to be banging the drum for you and your draft evaluation skills, okay? Just go over that. Not to say that he's a bad kid or anything like that. But <laughs> well, sure, sure's a good guy, yeah. Yeah, sure, he's a great guy. I don't want to say that Johnson was entirely the reason that Aaron Brule transferred after he represented Mississippi State at SEC Media Days last year, but Johnson's emergence was absolutely a part of that, and you can't convince me otherwise. Johnson's got the best coverage grade among all returning SEC inside linebackers. He also blows up plays in the backfield. He's kind of everything you would want in the middle of Zach Arnett's defense, which we respect the 3-3-5 here. That's what we do. Always, every day. One of my bold predictions was that SEC defenses, for, for SEC defenses was that Mississippi State would have the number four defense in the SEC at season's end. It's kind of bold, it's kind of bold. Basically saying I think they could have a top 25 defense right. in college football. And I think because of a guy like Johnson who just does so many things well for you and really became a fan favorite last year, I think that, that people are going to soon outside of Starkville kind of see Mississippi State defense does not mess around. And they have a lot of very intriguing pieces once they get some of those pass rushers back and healthy this year. But more people should be talking about Mississippi State. More people should be talking about Jet Johnson. Okay, um, Isaiah McGuire, the Mizzou defensive lineman. Zoom defensive lineman? Well, remember how one of our I didn't know the defensive lineman, actually. I just, <laughs> I just thought they had some, some cones out there, really. <laughs> We're going to drop some knowledge on, on, on the people today. One of our favorite activities last year was making fun of Mizzou's run defense. It was a very well-documented topic during the season. Mizzou actually finished 124 out of 130 FBS teams, which was the byproduct of being number 34 nationally in the month of November. Okay, they had to improve to get to 124. <laughs> they in, they like, finished strong though, Connor. That's what's important. It's all that matters. Mizzou was like the kid in high school who has a 45% in class, and then he does a few makeup assignments, but then gets like a, a B plus on the final just to end up with a D, just to be able to pass the class. That was, and I'm not saying that Mizzou's run defense was up to the standard that everybody hoped by season's end. But still, why did Mizzou get that D and not an F? Isaiah McGuire became a really good player. Fun fact, he had 14 tackles for loss last year. That was one of those stats where I'm like, wait, what? Really? Did not realize that. Also didn't realize he had the number five PFF run grade among SEC edge defenders. He won SEC Defensive Lineman of the Week honors for that dominant showing that he had against South Carolina. I think Mizzou's gonna be better up front this year. Can't be much worse than they were last year. Addition by subtraction with the Steve Wilkes thing. 78% of that returning defensive production back. I, I think much to the delight of Mizzou fans, it'll be under different leadership and they'll be a little bit more comfortable. And it's because of guys like McGuire, who in my opinion, have all SEC type upside coming into this year. Okay, Will, this one is gonna be one of your favorites. Oh yes. JJ Pegues. 
The king. The, defensive the king has returned. The, the thick boy who was promised. Funny that you say return because he is now with Ole Miss. Right. He is an Oxford native. If you're wondering why that name sounds familiar, it's because Pegues was a dude who went viral for being a 305-pound Wildcat quarterback who hurdled that dude against Arkansas. He was roughly one of like, I don't know, give or take about 40 defensive linemen who transferred from Auburn this offseason. Sure felt like <laughs> it, at least. He goes back to Oxford where he'll play for Lane. I've told this story before, I'll tell it again. I asked Lane about Pegues in the middle of the 2020 season. It was right after he was hurdling dudes as a true freshman. And Lane was super bummed about Pegues because he said he didn't even really have a chance to recruit him. And that if he ever switched to being a three technique defensive lineman, he could be a top five pick in the draft. And now, yeah, I know, right? Like that's not a normal thing that you expect to hear a coach talking about a, a, a player, especially a, a player who's from that specific town who spurned him essentially in the recruiting process. He was really thinking um, about that. You could tell it's like, man, that's yeah. a nice guy. We really let him get away. And uh, he got him and he got him. And, and now um, the, the story could complete with Pegues becoming an absolute factor on that defensive line. Um, I, I think that it's going to take maybe a little bit for him to develop the technique. I don't know that he's going to blossom into, you know, some all SEC type of guy like a Jalen Carter type from the jump. But this is a guy who we need to remember, like he's still learning the technique. He was catching fades as a tight end in high school. <laughs> all right. He, he's played defensive line. He played defensive line last year and made the switch and whatnot. But it's probably going to be more flashes than it is overall consistency, the overall volume. We saw some of that upside in the spring game where he just bullied an offensive lineman and basically touched Luke Altmaier who went down Cole Kubelik had that, that that clip that I retweeted uh, but that that explosiveness that twitch at that size is super rare which is why they moved him to the defensive line playing three technique and if we can come up with a draft for Will this this might be something this might be a project for you in the offseason <laughs> a draft for linemen who will score an offensive touchdown this year oh Pegues is probably first pick oh he's easy, got it dude easy yeah he, he's got to be. I, I would bet good money that Lane is going to have a Piggy's goal line package. And if he doesn't, for shame. For shame. I, I will tweet at Lane if we do <laughs> not get a J.J. Piggy's goal line package this year. That absolutely needs to happen. He's that dude. That's Yeah, I can't wait for like the media days where you're just like, so are you the guy who's been tweeting at me every week about J.J. Piggy's? <laughs> yeah, and... <laughs> That's my question, Lane. No, I don't know. Yeah. Are you aware of social media star Hezbollah? We've talked about, I think we've talked about this off air briefly, but he is, um, he is a, a little person, correct? Yes, except see, you've paid attention. That's why I appreciate okay. you, Connor. He's like a Russian little person who all of his content is just him kind of flexing and there's like TikTok music in the background. Pekis reminds me of like a college football version of Hezbollah. It's like everything he does is like fire. You could just put like some Meg Thee Stallion in the background to his highlights and he just feels at home. I don't know the best way to say it. He's not the fastest guy, the strongest guy, but he just, he has heart in spades, you know? He's got vibes. If you ever want to uh, go down a fun Twitter rabbit hole, <clears throat> look at some of the plays that he made in high school at yes. his size. <laughs> it's it's great. I'm not just talking about like huddle. I'm talking about stuff that that reporters were there and they could like tweet out a clip or something like that. If you want to go search it on Twitter, uh, JJ Pegues, he's got he's got plenty of those. Yes, everything he does is fire, and I expect that will be the case again this year. Please give us the goal line package, Lane. Just do it. Just do it. South Carolina, DK Joiner. Football player, DK Joyner. FBP. 
I, I tweeted this out, like there, there needs to be an FBP award. I, I know that we have the Paul Horning award, that's for the most versatile player in college football. No, 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 no. I want the guys who are listed as football player to be eligible for this. I don't care if they don't have some thousand yard season or something like that. They're probably not gonna be all conference type guys. Football players. DK Joyner has become a football player and a valuable one at that. This is this is where my brain went. The little peel behind the honey here, well. <laughs> is DK Joyner more loyal to South Carolina than most adults are to their spouses? <laughs> you almost have to be to still be South Carolina at this point, yeah. I'm gonna make the case for it. I'm gonna do that, because that's what we do on this podcast. Joyner gets to South Carolina as a four-star quarterback. He redshirts as a true freshman, pretty typical. Redshirt freshman year, they're like, hey, we think this true freshman, a class below you, Ryan Halinski, we think he's better than you. So instead of being third on the depth chart, do you wanna maybe play receiver for us instead? And he's like, ugh, fine, I guess I'll start taking some reps there, or whatever, I, I wanna be quarterback, but I'll, I'll start taking some reps at receivers. And then Bentley has the season-ending injury that year, and Halinski becomes the starter, and they put Joyner in that like QB2 spot, which mm -hmm. kind of limits his development at receiver. 2020 comes around, they bring in Mike Bobo. They also say that's what a great <laughs> You way know how this sense. story is. They bring in Mike Bobo, blank, finish it in, kid. <laughs> but wait, there's more, because they say, hey, we're gonna bring in Colin Hill. Also, by the way, we like another true freshman who, is we think is better than you, Luke Doty. So if you could stay here and play receiver, well, we know that's not your first choice, but it's our choice. What do you say to that? And you gotta so, trust them because of the great success they've achieved in South Carolina. You just course. gotta say, I'll put my development on hold for you guys. You gotta play him, hey. He does it though, and he goes all in with playing receiver. 2020 happens, bad year for South Carolina, coaching staff gone in midseason. He only had seven catches that year because fun fact, it is super challenging to switch from quarterback to receiver. And I will bang that drum all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Last off season, Joyner could have very easily left South Carolina and probably had some options playing immediately. I don't know if that would have been a quarterback or if some teams would have taken a chance on him at receiver, but he, he could have done that and instead of maybe like, saying, I don't really know what I'm gonna be in this new offense with, with the new coach. I mean, this, again, third new offensive coordinator here. He's having to figure things out. And instead, he stays, and he becomes like a 30 to 35 snap guy, mostly out of the slot, but he's also doing things on special teams coverage, return, like he's just, he's a part of it. He's a key contributor. And then the Mayo Bowl happens. Nine for nine passing, passing, mind you, passing. Mm -hmm. 160 yards, he had that dime to Jaheim Bell. He ran for 64 yards, he earns Mayo Bowl MVP. My guy Ben Portnoy had this recent nugget from a Beamer press conference where he said that Joyner actually had teams reaching out to him about leaving South Carolina to come play quarterback and Joyner was like, nah, I'm staying. I like what I'm doing here. <laughs> So whatever now, it may be. <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow it may be something new, but that's what I love about this place, man. Yes. He's coming back year five and he is up for again, the very highly coveted, highly unofficial football player of the year award given to guys who are listed as FBP. Make it a thing, Keaton Thompson, mm -hmm. huge FBP. Malik Hornsby oh, yeah. could be in that FBP conversation depending on what his usage looks like this year. But DK Joyner, I'll, I'll forever be a fan. He's a man.
I, I feel like I'm saying this kind of judgmentally, where, where in reality we hear over and over again about how this generation is like transferring constantly and as soon as one thing doesn't go their way, they're out of town and there's money flying everywhere. It's like, that's awesome. There's no other way to spin that. That's awesome. He's like, I committed here. I'm going to see this out. That's fire. I'm definitely rooting for him. DK Joyner's your dad's favorite player too. Yep. All right. Even your dad can get on board with a guy who, 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 did, who did whatever that team needed him to do. And now I think, and I hope that he becomes a valuable piece of that offense. He's also got t-shirts out that say, um, um, keep calm and carry on. Like his last, like, Carrion Joyner, carry on. There's no eye Gamecocks. So that's a, that's a lesson right there. That's a front pocket little zinger from you, Will. <laughs> I'm sorry. Love it. Love it. All right, Tennessee, Cedric Tillman. The receiver who I think should be part of any conversation about who the best receiver in college football will be this year. I'd like to do a 180 on something that I said a couple months ago when we did our Keishon Butte conversation, the battening case of Keishon Butte. Mm -hmm. I said that he would probably still be my bet to leave the SEC in receiving even though there were all those landmines that I kind of laid out. I want off that take. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm selling that take. I, I want to pivot away from it. The more I thought about it, the more I realized Tillman should be that guy. Yeah. That's where the conversation needs to be if you're talking about most productive receivers in the SEC this year. I love, as we talked about with Joyner, I love seeing guys who stick it out and just kind of take off as upperclassmen. Guys who are considered, hey, we're going to praise your work ethic even if you're not getting the production. That's what Cedric Tillman was. And then you see him take off in a way that very few players have in recent memory in college football. And here's what I mean by this. Okay, his numbers for a year four guy after that Florida game. So after that Florida game, everybody had kind of written off Tennessee. It's like, all right, they've, they've now got the second loss or whatever. It's like, you're not really paying attention to that team from a national standpoint. So to that point through the Florida game, Cedric Tillman's career numbers, 14 catches for 202 yards and three touchdowns. Again, this is somebody in year four of college. So you're kind of like, all right, you know, it was a nice maybe offseason storyline that he's going to be able to contribute. Coaches are saying good things about him, whatever. In the nine games after that, dude has 58 catches, 1,003 yards, and 11 touchdowns. Woo! Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. 352 of those yards came against Alabama and Georgia. He dropped two bills on that Georgia defense. Mm -hmm. I mean, ridiculously good stuff that he probably didn't get enough credit for because Tennessee wasn't basically relevant after the first month of the season from a contending standpoint. His seven game stretch to end the season, he averaged 6.9 catches, 124 yards, and 1.4 touchdowns. It's amazing what happens when these three things happen for a receiver. One is that he becomes known as the guy who works his tail off, as we talked about it. He becomes a better route runner, gets in better shape to be able to play in every snap in this high tempo offense. Tillman does that. Another thing, Tillman took off once he was in an offense that actually prioritized downfield passing and they had guys on the roster who could throw a downfield pass. But the last part of it, you had a How many guys, Connor? Well, they had multiple guys who could throw it, but you needed to get the quarterback who could complete it. And that That's is massive. what Hennon Hooker did. Yes. yes. Very, very key thing to be able to have if you're a receiver. We are hen dogs. Cedric Tillman, a big reason why we are hen dogs. He is a true first go-to receiver that Hendon Hooker is going to have. 
if there's kind of like a, oh, hey, what's it going to look like if you're comparing, you know, the likes of Will Levis and Hendon Hooker and, and, and KJ Jefferson, if you're saying like, oh, well, you know, who is the most obvious number one receiver? Hendon Hooker has that advantage. He's got somebody that he knows he can trust and being able to kind of develop that route tree, which is one of the reasons why he came back for year five instead of kind of cashing in on his big second half and going to the NFL. I think that's what he wants to be able to do and run some of those, some, some more of those intermediate routes. But Cedric Tillman, absolute all bang the drum guy. I just want to say really quick about Cedric Tillman. He strikes me, I was like, oh, he strikes me as that guy, like every Tennessee play was him. And I was like, oh, that kind of reminds me of Callaway. And I look back at their numbers and Callaway had 13 career touchdowns and Tillman had 12 last season. So that's the yep. most disrespectful thing I've ever thought, number one. Number two, I mean, it's just crazy to think like how great this guy is. You know what I'm saying? Because like I literally was thinking to myself like, yeah, probably like ten, number one Tennessee receiver at big plays and it's like, no, like exactly what you said after the Florida game. It's like, yeah, like once they, their quarterback situation kind of settled, once they kind of became the team that was successful that we kind of lauded throughout the season, he was a huge reason why. And you're right. It's like, there's not really a reason to say he's going to do worse than that simply because we're not going to have Joe Milton play quarterback almost at all. As long as Hinton is healthy, oh, I hope you're giving me a face. You know, not if, any, not if Josh Apple has anything to do with it. But I think at this point, it's pretty stable. If he's healthy, he's going to get like a full, you know, 12, 13 games of that. I'm excited. I think that Cedric Tillman is a guy that like all SEC fans should know his name right now because they will yes. know his name in like five or six you know, weeks into the season. Yes, uh, it's that entire offseason, being able to work with Hendon Hooker. Mm -hmm. Last year, 16 catches of 25 yards. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's a little bit. pretty good. Yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll help your offense out. Okay, Texas A&M, <clears throat> Antonio Johnson. Kind of talked about a good amount in here. Can, can I say something to you without getting absolutely roasted? Do I have permission to do that? Never. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I'm gonna get roasted for this. I am absolutely not saying that Antonio Johnson is Honey Badger 2.0. See, I there we go. That's not. why I guarantee <laughs> I got your, I got everybody listening at home. I got your attention by saying that. That's why we throw things like that in there every once in a while. I am, however, saying that Johnson has some Honey Badger in him. He does. You cannot teach that level of nastiness. You mm -hmm. just can't. It's, it's this mix of confidence with controlled rage to be able to operate between the lines the way that he does, the way that a honey badger does, and now doing it for your New Orleans Saints, which yes. I know you're very happy about. Check out the new profile pic. Welcome home, so boys. Hard. Just him, Jarvis Landry, just making my little heart happy. Yes. I don't know if, they're gonna, if the Saints are gonna be drafting Antonio Johnson anytime soon, um, potentially, because obviously they got honey badger to do mm -hmm. all those different things. He's a game wrecker though, he absolutely is. When we had Mike Elko on, I saw his, light, his eyes just light up talking about the guy. It's gotta be so fun as a defensive coordinator to just know that you have a guy that you can ask to do so many different things and he's going to be able to do them well mm -hmm. at a very high level. And that sounds like a basic thing, but I imagine it's kind of like having a friend who lives down the street who can kind of just come over and fix anything or at least tell you exactly what's wrong with your house and just know and be able to kind of assess those areas and be like, oh, I'm better for knowing that person. Thank you for taking care of that <laughs> and knowing that my air conditioner was not operating the way that it should. By the way, speaking of that, Will yeah. is currently operating <laughs> in a house that does not have a working air conditioner and it has 85 degrees in his Atlanta home. So thoughts and prayers to you right you now. Watching me turn red throughout this whole podcast. I told I you before, yeah, that's the only reason I brought it up. Is like, you're gonna think I'm dying as we do this more. Don't worry about it. Yes, if Will says anything that you disagree with in the second half of this or anything that just sounds totally crazy, just, just give him a pass, all right? He's working without AC, <laughs> he's playing hurt right now. Okay? A little bit. 
Yeah. Okay, Cam Smith is the only returning Power 5 corner with a better coverage grade than Antonio Johnson. Cam Smith, South Carolina, very, very good. Mm -hmm. A&M fans get upset when you call Johnson a corner because he does things that a safety or a linebacker can do. What do I mean? He had the number six run grade among all FBS corners, run defense grade, that is. Mm -hmm. But what I really love is those, like, maybe three plays a game when Elko would send Johnson on a blitz and he would just run through dudes. I'm still convinced that Bo Nix would have been decapitated if that one play wasn't whistled dead. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like that dunk. It was like the, the non-dunk that you just are blown away with. You're like, oh my God, it didn't go in. Yep. But if it did, that would have been something we'd be talking about in 30 years. Maybe that was a little bit extreme, but you get what I'm saying. For sure, yeah. My, my only fear with Johnson is that with a new defensive coordinator and so many pieces in front of him in that front seven, maybe he doesn't quite play with that same top level speed. Again, that's my only concern. I hope that I'm wrong though, because at full speed, he is very, very fun to watch. Will, tell me that you're not gonna quit this job because I just compared somebody to Honey Badger. No, I've done a full pivot now and I would like to talk about Honey Badger's first game against Texas A&M. So here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. I actually don't even like super, but like when you watch that first game against Texas A&M, it was like a game changer thing. I always say compare people to Jabril Peppers. You know what I'm saying? Cause like that's, that was a great fine player. And that first game he stepped on the field and was the best player in college football until he stepped off the field. I've never seen something like that in my life. However, Having a dual corner is certainly not a bad thing, and, and just because you know, a guy to be, you know, it's not, it's not fair. It's like comparing quarterbacks to Burrow. That's why I get so mad at that. It's like there are so many guys to pick from, and I, I look, you know, at the way he played last year, and, and an A&M team that was. Um, susceptible to runs, I feel like is a pretty fair way to describe them. I think that that type of stability is very good for them. I think that you have a guy that you know is a thumper, that you know will, is just, he's a foxhole guy. He is, he's a, he's a football player, you know? FBP. Yes. All day. Through and through on the defensive side of the ball. Maybe we need to open up FBP to defensive guys as well. It oh, shouldn't yeah. just be an offensive thing. Yeah, Johnson would qualify. Football player confirmed. Last one. Vandy. Patrick Smith, the running back. Fitting that we're <clears throat> ending with a running back. Mm -hmm. Well, do you recall why Patrick Smith is on this list? I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you, oh, do you remember? Oh, gosh. Patrick Smith. We talked about him, and I remember. Yes, we did. <laughs> the Google Doc, please. Do you answer it? Our guy's nickname is Cheeks. <laughs> it's in all caps. It just says his nickname is Cheeks in all caps. Sorry. It is not my job to decipher what the workload is going to be in Vandy's backfield. Okay? Not what I'm here to do. It is, however, my job to say, get Cheeks the football right now. If I do nothing <laughs> of any substance, let that be the one thing. He was a nice player actually last year, fun fact. He's kind of what they need behind a really bad offensive line as well if we want to really get into the numbers. PFF had him at number three in the SEC in average yards after contact. So pretty good, pretty good. Um, you know we love that stat, very, mm -hmm. very important. Moral of the story, Cheeks will run right through you, okay? <laughs> These, these all caps Google Docs lines are sending me. I'm such, I've gone from like a level two fan to like a level 10 fan just in here you hype this fan up. We need to be Cheeks supporters. Yes, pro Cheeks, I'll say it. Pro Cheeks, hey, Cheeks, if Cheeks runs for a thousand yards, we'll be banging the drum for him to be an all SEC type guy. Oh yes. Have to, have to. Okay, any other guys that, that came to mind for you before we, before we get to our interviews here? 
Um, so you kind of like put this on the docket. The couple of guys that I actually would have had uh, for very different reasons are actually already on here. Talked about Gibbs, talked about Tillman, uh, talked about Pagese. I'm glad we got to talk about him. I thought I would just be screaming about Pagese. So I clicked on the link. I was like, he gets me. He knows what I'm yep. about. So yeah, I, I, I think actually my, my lads that I love are pretty well covered. Um, I don't really think there's any type of like, I don't think there's a guy that we're missing. I think obviously, you know, we've talked enough. The thing is we've talked about so many guys, like um, the whole South Carolina, like QB tight end situation, like either of those guys, I feel like it could be like bang the drum type of guys, but again, no quarterbacks around that. So yeah, I think this is a pretty good, a pretty good cross section an onion as some would say. And because Brodarius Ham is off to the NFL, that's yeah. really why. Yeah, and Brodarius Ham is gone and good for him. He is going to give his family a nice life, Brodarius Ham. Anybody named Brodarius deserves to live a nice life. Back. That's what I always say. All right, Can't let's get into our, our interviews. Uh, great stuff from Keith Marshall and RJ Young. Marler told me about Keith's story after meeting him at G-Day, and I, I knew like the stuff of Georgia running back, of course, but just kind of what he's been able to do since then and what he is now doing with uh, the Players' Lounge. So I, I pretty much, after we had that conversation, I was like, yeah, that's something that we got to definitely be able to have on. So we're going to start with him, and then we'll go to RJ to discuss just a ton of different college football things and even a little bit of USFL. So first, Keith, then RJ. I'm not excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is former Georgia running back and current players lounge leader, Keith Marshall. I don't really know how to phrase that leader. Like I, I'm, you know, let's, let's start right there with what you're doing with players lounge, because we've talked about it with Aaron Murray and Peter Burns, but like me knowing those guys, I'm assuming they just kind of rode on your coattails of your brilliant idea to start this thing. I would not say that at all. Uh, I appreciate the compliment, <laughs> but this has absolutely been a team effort. And the, the guy on the truth is a guy named Ty Fricks, uh, who Aaron and myself played with in college. We kind of brought the pieces together and got things started. But um, I think the appropriate way to, to address it, it would be co-founder. Um, so I co-founded it with three of my, my former teammates. And me and Murray are transitioning now into being co-CEOs. So um, he'll be kind of more of the face, you know, branding, you know, selling to other universities as we expand. And I'll be more of the down and in. So, uh, you know, daily operations, understanding the financing, the strategy, making sure all the different departments are moving in the same direction. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that's how I would address this. Uh, let's let's explain sort of the, the background of this and why it's kind of able to exist in this new NIL world that, that we're living in. What role does the, the Players' Lounge play in someone like Stetson Bennett? Hypothetically speaking, like what role would that play in him being able to, to make some NIL money? Absolutely. So actually, he was one of our first two athletes. So that's a great example. Um, and the way we kind of brand ourselves, we're an NIL platform. Um, we house a community of fans. So the same way that a lot of these companies think the traditional companies like Arrival, Scout, 247, they have a lot of fans that subscribe. Um, then on the other side of that, now because NIL, we're able to you know get the athletes to engage information, experiences um, with the fans directly as opposed to going through a third-party media house. Um, and so that's really what it is. The NIL platform, we have a large set of consumer base that we're able to use to continuously create opportunities for these kids to monetize their brand. So, um, you know, we started off with the whole community building PFP project project, which we can, we can dive into what the, exactly that means. And, um, you know, that's how we started the community. But now because we have that, that in place, we were able to do one-offs. So like we have some golf deals for some of our athletes that enjoy golfing. We've done some outdoor things. Uh, we've done some performance stuff with cars just because, you know, we really want the platform to be able to highlight whatever the athlete wants to, um, whereas whatever his interests or her interests are outside of, you know, the sport that they play. I've had uh, some talks about like 
NFTs and the relevance of them and whatnot. But I think with what you guys are doing, NFTs actually have real value because they're essentially like a ticket. It's like a virtual mm-hmm. ticket to be able to do these cool events Absolutely. with you guys. And it's kind of connecting players as well. But since you're in this space, I'm curious, like what, cause you've been asked this question, I'm, I'm sure before, but how would you define what a collective currently is and its current role in college sports? So collect that's interesting. I, mean, I don't know that there is one definition, like different schools are having different models. I think is kind of starting to define itself over time. Um, but what we have seen is really collectives are kind of a third party. You know, they work with the university, but they're not necessarily con- connected to the university. They go out and raise money, somewhat like a private equity fund would from a lot of the donors, a lot of the money guys that typically would pay for the new facilities and things of that nature. Um, they then, you know, sign all the, co- the athletes to contracts. And by doing that, they're able to elicit sponsorship opportunities and other branding opportunities for their athletes. And they basically just put their athletes on salary. So it's a way to kind of use the current infrastructure of, you know, you got to do the quid pro quo. So an athlete has to do something in order to get paid. But in reality, we know, you know, value is subjective. So you, know, you can do really anything. If they have a big pool of money to give you, they can give it to you. So that's kind of how they're, uh, it looks like in my opinion, that's the way that they're setting themselves up. What was your reaction to the NCAA saying that it was going to attempt to, to shut down collectives? I think it's interesting. I don't know how they're going to do that. Though. Yeah. You know I mean? Like when you tell somebody can get paid off of their name, image and likeness, ultimately, you know, you, the market defines that value. So, you know, at Tennessee, the kid got paid some ridiculous amount. It was like $8 million for a crew. Um, I know that seems absurd for somebody that hasn't played a, a college snap yet, but that's what the market dictates. You know, that's what the market dictates. So I think, you know, their overall goal is just to kind of dial things back a little bit and put a lot of lot structure around it to make sure you're protecting the athletes, you're, you know, maintaining the sanctity of the game itself. Um, but I don't know exactly what they're going to be able to do tactically. I'm curious to see. Uh, I want to dig into your background because my coworker, Chris Marler was telling me about uh, meeting you a few weeks ago at G day. We were talking about that a little bit off air and how like you were just so incredibly smart and you're this guy who went to Emory to, to get his MBA after your playing career ended. I only knew two people who went to Emory and their brains were like 10 times the size of mine. Um, what ultimately led you down that path? So, I mean, to be honest, it was something that kind of popped up. You know, you always say you put yourself in certain positions and opportunities present themselves. Um, you know, my background with athletics. Can you pick that up right now? Are you picking that up? Yeah, you're good. Don't worry about it. We're good. It's a podcast. You know, you know, as an athlete, was obviously always kind of, if I'm being completely transparent, was, was sports came first. Football was my primary focus, but I was very fortunate to have parents that, you know, academic um, success or, you know, achieving at a high level was a requirement in my household. So I understood the power of academics and have a, have a choice. Um, and so when I kind of dealt with a lot of the injuries in undergrad, I switched to finance, which was a little bit more challenging. I knew I would open up opportunities down the road. And so in 2019, I walked away from, from uh, rehabbing for a couple of years from an injury I got with the, with the Redskins and now Commanders and kind of go through that dark period. We really don't know what's next. You know, I was dealing with the idea that I didn't get to accomplish in my football career what I wanted to accomplish. Um, I was dealing with physical pain, you know, going through rehab for a couple of years. Um, you know, you're kind of by yourself when you're in that space. And then you know, the uncertainty of what was next. You know, all of that was, you know, it was, it was a transition. It was tough to deal with. And ultimately, you know, my parents and the people that were close to me pushed me to, you know, just get back moving forward towards something. You just need some structure in your life, something to kind of get you back on a path towards achieving whatever it is uh, that you're going to ultimately kind of go after next. And so, um, you know, I, I found out about a program called the Consortium that basically, you know, they support minorities that going into higher education, particularly in business. And so I was able to get a scholarship through them. Um, you know, the guy on the was when I went to Emory, I had no idea what, 
what I wanted to do afterwards. You know, they make you go recruit and they do an internship and all of that was brand new for me. But, um, you know, that's kind of what led me there. It's just I, I knew I had to do something in order to get back going and get on my feet again after I was transitioning you know, from ball. And ultimately, I mean, it was a life-changing experience. It opened up so many doors. You know, I had opportunities to, to intern and work for some of the best companies in the world over the last two years and to really round out my business um, acumen and understand the way that things things work in this world as opposed to the you know, athletic world that I come from. What was the last time that somebody dropped a Gershaw reference on you? More frequently than you would, you would think <laughs> since it was so long ago. Uh, it's funny. You hear it every now and then, particularly when I'm in Athens, every now and then, oh, you were half a Gershaw, you know, uh, bringing back a little bit of those glory days, a little bit of the memories. How much would those shirts have gone for and how much would you have made like fall of 2012, man, like the Gershaw shirts, if you had had like the, the exact right logo, yeah. that would have been all over Athens. Yeah, we made a lot of money. I mean, I can't even imagine the amount of money these kids are getting paid now. I don't want to throw a number out because obviously we'll never know, but she's, you know. Uh, it's pretty amazing to, to think about you and you and Todd teaming up the way that you you did. And I read uh, I read an article from like 10 years ago on redandblack.com that the night before you were going to commit, you had you had told Gurley and some family that you were going to go to Clemson and you wake up the next day, decide, nah, I'm going to Georgia. Dabo tells you good luck. Yeah. Um, which I like to think that there's a little bit of saltiness in, in that, in, in that little, you know, send off, but take me yeah. back to that whole process and why it played out the way that it did. So, so it was interesting, man, growing up, probably by the time I was in middle school, I was always somebody that was a fan of players more so than like a specific university. Um, and obviously, you know, Noshan was the man and Noshan was my favorite player when I was in middle school. And so I kind of came to be a Georgia fan by way of him. And I had family in Atlanta and kind of understood the rich tradition they had, particularly the running back tradition. Um, I mean, the position. And so, you know, as I began to get recruited the whole time, I, I wanted to go to Georgia. You know, that was always the goal. I went through the process because it was fine. It was an awesome experience, but I always knew I wanted to end up at Georgia. Um, me and Todd, we ended up connecting, I think, going into my sophomore, junior year through track. And we stayed pretty close because we were both, you know, two kids from North Carolina. I didn't really have any immediate friends that were getting recruited. So we were, we were able to kind of relate to each other on that on that front. And we decided we wanted to go to school together. And so we ended up taking a whole bunch of our officials and we both had one left. We were like, All right, let's just go to Clemson. Man. It's the last one. We kind of already know where we're going. Um, let's just go check it out. It's, it's not far drive. So go to Clemson and they, they rolled out the red carpet and it was by far my, my best official. You know, they, 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 they wind and down my mom, my dad. And so I had friends there. And so after, you know, we walked away from it, it was like, I was really feeling Clemson. They just did an amazing job recruiting. I liked Dabo. I liked the running back coach they had. And so I had to do the early, uh, the early commit because I was an early enrollee. And, you know, I was on the phone with Todd and um, Ronald Darby, who ended up going to Florida State. And we were all kind of boys and we all wanted to go to the same school. And we all, Clemson's things like all in. So I mean, we talked probably till two, three in the morning. We got off the phone, like, we're all in. We're going to Clemson. It's, it's a done deal. Keith is going to be the first kind of domino to drop. And there's just something didn't sit right in my soul because it's like, I always wanted to go to Georgia. It was like, if I would have went to Clemson, I'm sure everything would have worked out. It would have been amazing. But I felt like, I always in the back of my mind would have wished I would have went down to Athens. And so ultimately couldn't sleep, woke up in the morning, texted Todd. I was like, man, I'm not going to be able to do Clemson. Um, decided to, to make the Georgia thing happen. And then I spent the next couple of months recruiting him so that he would ultimately uh, come join me in Athens. Okay. So I, I got to ask about that, that next couple months, five weeks, whatever it was where you're recruiting Todd and, and you're basically having to like talk him out of becoming the next CJ Spiller at Clemson. Cause I remember he was really big coming out and that was, that was a huge deal. But like, what, what was that process like and talking to men to Georgia and like how, how much convincing did you have to do? I don't know. I would, I would be curious. Honestly, I've thought about this. I would be curious to sit down and talk to Ty, like how much of, a, of an impact that really had on him. 
Um, but like we were close, you know, I talked to them every single day that like, we were absolutely packaged that we went to all our officials together. So I think I certainly played a role in it because I was there. I was comfortable. I was able to tell them like, it's not a facade. The coaches are who they appear to be. The program is what they tell you it is. And so I think having me there hopefully helped push him, push him that way. But I, I would be curious to, to know the answer to that question myself, like how much of an impact that had. Your freshman season just had to feel like a movie. I mean, you and you and Todd are, are just dominating dudes, and, and George is in the title hunt. Like it's one of those things that they, they probably show you that type of stuff in a recruiting visit, and how many actual freshmen get to live that out, where you're you're contributing and you're such a big part of of a contending team. What was the, the peak of that season for you? Um, the peak of it that is because I remember the Tennessee game. I don't know what week it was, like four or five. Yeah, I had I had um. I had like 10 carries for almost 200 yards or something like that. I can't remember exact stats, a few big, big, long touchdown runs. And I remember me and Ty, I mean, he had a great game too. So that was when like, we both like, you know, he started off strong. I started off okay. And then I kind of had a few really good weeks back to back. I remember after that game, that was when it felt like we, we arrived. You know what I mean? Like we were there, everybody from a national scene, because Tennessee was good. It was a really good ball game. We ended up pulling away late. And, uh, you know, that, that was after the game, we went to Longhorns, which was our spot. We would always go there. And like, we walk into the Longhorns, everybody stands up, starts clapping. Like, you know, the food is taken care of. And that's when I was like, wow, like, you know, Athens, they, they support their own. And that's kind of when I first got that feeling of being a real college football, you know, star and getting to getting to enjoy all that came with that. You, uh, you roomed with Todd. I mean, he's, he's your guy. I got to imagine there's, there's a good story in there, or at least one that you're allowed to kind of share on these airwaves about just experiencing college for the first time together and kind of growing and having this, like you talk about this rise in popularity and kind of walking step and step with one another. I think we we were both a benefit to each other because, you know, as close as we were, we were a little bit of yin and yang. You know, Todd is much more outgoing than I was at that time. He probably still is more outgoing than me. I've opened up a little bit and, you know, I was much more probably reserved and, you know, didn't want to go out and do all the partying and stuff. So I think having us in the room together was a good balance. I was able to probably pull him back a little bit. Um, he was able to pull me out a little bit and make me become more social and, and enjoy that side of college a little bit. So, um, you know, there was a great experience as far as specific stories. I mean, I have millions of them. I do feel like I'm sure you've heard stories about Ty, you know, back in college. So we won't get into details, but, uh, it, it, you know, it was an awesome time for sure. I've uh, I've talked to Aaron about this a, a few like like a handful of times where we've we've discussed okay you know the I, everybody kind of understands that Georgia would have taken care of Notre Dame in a national championship at the end of the 2012 season. There's no real disagreement about that. I think even a Notre Dame fan for seeing the way they played out against Alabama would say, all right, we would have gotten our tails kicked by a lot of teams. Um, what would your final score have been uh, for, for that game, a Georgia-Notre Dame national championship? I can't remember what the score ended up being, but it was a blowout, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think it would have been very close to whatever it was. And our defense may have been better now than with defense that year, so maybe Notre Dame doesn't score. I remember watching the game and thinking, though, because I think TJ Yeldon had a good game and Eddie Lacy, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, man, that could have been me and Todd. Like, I just remember the whole game. Like, they probably both were over 100 yards. They were running wide open through the lanes. It was like, it was really no competition. I just remember, like, man, we were this close to that being us as true freshmen, you know? Did you do you watch that game? Like when when that happens, you are you sitting at home just like like just stewing, thinking about that, or is that one of those things where you're like, now nah, I'll maybe maybe I'll hear about this later. I don't really want to pay attention to this. It, it just I mean, it, it, at that point because you know back then there was like a large break in between like the the SC championship game and then there was just the one championship game. So it was like five six weeks. So we had already you know digested and understood how close we were to obviously achieving our dreams. So I don't think. 
you know, we were, it was hard to watch. It was just like, what's the, I don't know what the kind of word, you know, envious maybe that it wasn't us just because I know what we could have done. And, and obviously what that would have meant to Georgia. Um, so, you know, it was definitely, I had that feeling of, man, you know, next year we're going to get to be in a position like that. It was motivation and all that good stuff. But selfishly, I would have liked to rip it up for, you know, a hundred plus yards on the national championship stage. So. I got to imagine as great as that freshman year was, there, there were probably some, some tough moments for you the, the rest of the way where your, your guy Todd is going off and you, you get hurt as a sophomore and then, you know, junior year, a couple of guys by the name of Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle come into the picture <laughs> yeah. and yeah. like, you know, and now people kind of, it's kind of, it's, it's frustrating that when people look back on that running back room, so many of them will say like Gurley, Chubb and Michelle. And it's like, do people forget yeah. about Marshall? Because that yeah. dude tore it up as a freshman. Like were, were you ever close to, to, to transferring throughout that time? I wasn't close to transferring, man. I really wasn't. I get that question quite a bit. Uh, Cause you know, you mentioned freshman year, we were both, we both had enough success to where like, you know, I wasn't necessarily the superstar, but I was a star. So I got to share in that limelight a little bit. And, you know, the, the, the season I had as a freshman, you know, I was getting hit up by agents, a year future, you know, this round pick. So everything was still on the board. Um, kind of behind the scenes, what was going on is I, I tore my ACL when I was young. I tore my ACL in seventh grade. Oh, so I had some like, yeah, I battled back from that for a couple of years when I was really young and it ended up, you know, getting away from the brace and everything. But it ended up leaving me with really bad tendonitis. So I had tendonitis from the time I was in 11th grade. And so even my freshman year, I wasn't tr I wasn't truly healthy. You know what I mean? So I always had in the back of my mind, like if I could just get to be 100 percent like this, you know, I feel like I could do whatever anybody else could do. Right. And then to go into that sophomore year and I was kind of off to a slow start because I got gained some weight. And my body wasn't feeling great. And then I tore my ACL, MCL, and all partial PCL. And so when I did that, I ended up having double knee surgery, right? Because the other knee, they went in and fixed that too. And so I was in a wheelchair for, you know, two, three months and had to learn how to walk and run again and all that stuff. And so I think because I had that experience and it wasn't like I was not playing because of, you know, talent, that it was probably easier pill to swallow because I knew I had things that I had to work on before I was even in a position to be able to compete with those guys. You know, I couldn't really at that time run. So I was more focused on um, obviously getting back healthy and trying to continue to pursue my dreams. But I would be lying if I told you that, you know, it's not, a, it, it was always a fun spot to be in and watch, you know, your best friend, one of your best friends tear it up and live out all his dreams. And the whole time, obviously I'm happy for him. I know where the guy comes from. I know his family. I know how hard he's worked. And so, you know, nothing but great things to say about him, but you know, you do feel like, you know, I could be in that position doing the similar type of things. And so that was, that was tough. And then uh, when Nick and Sony came in, it was funny because I knew I watched them in recruit. I knew they were both five-star, you know, some of the best running backs in the country, obviously being a former, you know, running back of that caliber coming, I knew the opportunity that freshman would have if they showed themselves capable. So I actually tried to get back the year that they came in prematurely so I could, you know, submit my spot and let everybody know, like, I'm back. <laughs> and it didn't work out. Like, I definitely should have just waited another year. Um, and then that year that I ended up redshirting my junior year, Ty got hurt, and then Nick came in and had, like, 1,600 yards, a true freshman. Sony showed everybody what he could do. So I understood what was, you know, what was kind of the transition that, you know, my time had somewhat passed. But being a competitor, being on the team, I was about to graduate with a finance degree. You know, there was an opportunity then to graduate and leave. I kind of was like, I'm going to do my time. You know, I'm going to compete whenever I get a chance to go in there and showcase what I can do. I'll do that, you know. Um, and, and that's what I did ultimately. And I still, get, still getting drafted, graduate with a finance degree. Everything certainly didn't pan out the way that I wanted it to, but, you know, that's, that's, that's life. Okay. So I want to talk about the combine, but what was the last time your knee felt healthy? You, you talk about having basically like for, since 11th grade, like dealing with the tendonitis and whatnot, like it was the last time your knee felt healthy in, in high school. It was, it was 11th grade. The last time I was, you know, healthy is kind of a, 
a loaded term. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the first, the last time I felt free as an athlete to be able to go out there and just react and I could train without having to tweak this or that to support, you know, to protect my knee was 11th grade, which is, which is crazy. Cause I, I tell people like, yeah, I had the big injuries, but I really feel like what ultimately was my Achilles heel was the tendonitis because it was like death by a thousand cuts. You know, over time, you can't train the same. You know, when you're out there on the field, you can't play freely. You have to kind of think in your mind, oh, can I make this cut? Can I make that cut? I'm running this way, so I got to slow. Like, and those things just inhibit and prohibit your ability to – it is inhibiting my bad um, – to, to be able to just play freely and kind of have be out there and have fun and then train in the offseason, things like that. So I think it certainly was like kind of like that death by a thousand cuts for me. The amazing thing is that you go to the combine and you you, you set the mark for for the forty time fastest forty in the combine. You run a four three one. I, I've always wondered the before and after that, and, and also you you tore it up at, at the bench press too and had the highest mark of any running back there. It, it's one thing if you're going to be a first round guy and you've already got like all this attention, but how quickly did that did that switch flip with teams talking to you immediately after when they when they saw how well you tested? It was interesting. I was in an interesting position at the combine because, as you know, you do a lot of like, you know, player coach interviews and stuff. And everything I was hearing was like, we feel like you're as talented, you know, as far as just your guy given ability and your upside as anybody. We don't know if you're healthy. And back in my mind, I'm like, well, really not. But I'm going to be up there, you know, like I am. So I think it certainly got a lot of attention. But at the same time, you know, those teams do their due diligence. We went through, I went through so many rounds of medical, you know, checks and different doctors. Went out and see some teams versus other teams, MRIs, CAT scans, every the whole gamut. And so, um, you know, I think they understood that, which is why I was a late round pick and a flyer, because, you know, they knew that we had to get healthy. What would you have run if you had been uh, fully healthy? I think had I been fully healthy there, I would have run 4-2. I ran like a 4-2-9 initially, but I pulled my hamstring. So one of the deals about that, when you come back from a knee for whatever reason, your gait is a little off, and so you have a lot of soft tissue you know, injuries. So I actually pulled my hamstring like severely three weeks before the, the combine, and I didn't train for three weeks. I was like sleeping in the hyperbaric chamber. I didn't know if I was going to be able to run. So I only, I only ran the 40 and then did the bench press, and then I kind of like the drills and stuff, I teased that up because my hamstring wasn't 100. I think had I – been a hundred, I would have run, you know, in the mid four twos. And if I never would have gotten hurt, I, I don't, I don't know. You know. <laughs> One thing I'll tell people is like, you know, talent, talent, and actually what you go out and produce and, and, you know, realize two different things. But when it comes to like just pure guy given abilities, I do feel like I was in a very special spot, you know, just no denying that whatsoever. Um, did you ever consider a track career or was that off the table once, uh, once the injury started to pile up? I never considered it afterwards. I never really considered it at all. I was really, I ran track my whole life, but it was always in service of football. Um, like I said, I met Todd and a lot of other the friends that ultimately played football as well through track. Um, and so I ended up, whenever I was 15 or 16, I had the number one time in the world for a while. Um, and so like I had, I had track coaches that, that recruited me, but everybody knew I was a football, you know, you know, so I ran track at Georgia for two years. Yeah. Even even after Georgia, when when or even after, you know, your playing career in the NFL, did you ever think to yourself like ah, maybe 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 I should give this a chance? Do you ever have any any of that post NFL interest to do it? I, I did it. I don't I don't know that I have the same love for track, but I enjoy competing. But, you know, the practice part of track is grueling. You know yeah, I mean? so just I just have to get up and run every day. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, so yeah. I don't know if I had the love for it to be able to do it professionally. What was this past year like for you, watching your team win a national championship? I, I've talked about that with Aaron about just kind of not having to hear about 2012 all the time, even though I asked you about 2012 earlier. Uh, but just being able to kind of move past that and, and watch watch your program be able to to kind of do what everybody said would never be done. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it, it was it felt like a long time coming, which I'm sure everybody would agree with, because we've been so close for so long. Like you mentioned, 2012, that was 10 years ago. And in the year before that, they were competitive and in that conversation. Um, and we've always had, you know, top talent, top coaches. And so, you know, for to see it all actually, you know, manifest into a championship was awesome. And then obviously I watched every single game and see how dominant they were. Like, it's one thing to win. It's another thing to win the way that they were winning. Like, it was, you know, no question who was the best team on the field, you know, every game except when we played Alabama, maybe Clemson early on. So um, it, was, it was super exciting, man, to see those kids go out there and compete, to see what Kirby has been able to do in, in Athens um, year in and year out from a recruiting perspective and then be able to develop that talent to the point where you have a defense with all the guys that we just see, saw get drafted and then we know the guys behind them. Um, so, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was truly amazing. And then obviously – you know, selfishly, again, we parlayed that into also dropping the players on NFTs at the same time. And so it was a win-win that, we, you know, it was, it was good on the field for UGA. And then we did well that is, as well. Business is booming, as they say. Yeah, extremely booming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Uh, I want to get you out of here with some rapid fire. Just five mm-hmm. questions. First thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? Yep. Yep. All right. Um, first one, say something nice about the NCAA. They give a lot of young people opportunities to showcase, showcase their skills. That's a great answer. That's a great yeah, answer. That's great. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like half truth, but yeah. yeah sure. I'll take it. Uh, name a, name a football player who could have beaten you in a race at your peak. Rocky is baby. I don't know that I was fast, bro. I'm not allowed. <laughs> you got to go back to the early nineties to find someone. I'm trying to think like, I was thinking Tariq Hill, but I saw his 40 time, his hundred time. And I would have been right there. You know, I, I don't know that he could beat me, you know, while I was healthy. Um, so I, yeah. You beat Herschel. Yeah. 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 I'll put money on the line on that one. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Outside of Athens, uh, what was the, the best college stadium you played in? I would say I'll answer that question too, as in it's rapid fire. Tennessee, as far as the visual, because it's just crazy, like it's all the way around. But as far as the experience and how loud it was, I would say South Carolina. Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. That's whenever somebody asks me, like, what's the difference between like the Big Ten and the SEC, I'll say like South Carolina can get 80,000 people rocking even after they just won two games and they have no chance of winning the division. And that's that's the difference. Yes. Unbelievable. Um, Speaking of South Carolina, did you ever apologize to that poor South Carolina defensive back that you juked out of his entire body? (laughs) No, I did not. No, it's part of the game, man. We all get got, you know, who was that? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last one for you. Uh, over under two more national titles that Kirby wins at Georgia. Over. I'm, I'm very bullish on, on Kirby, man. I've, I've been that way for a while. Do you wish, do you find yourself wishing that you could have just been able to have like that extra year of eligibility to be able to, well, I mean, you had the extra year of eligibility then yeah. you're like, I'm, I'm going to the draft understandably. So, but do you find yourself wishing you could have been able to kind of play in, in, in his team or even maybe in the Todd Munkin offense? Yeah, on on the Kirby deal, and that's no slight against Coach Rick. I really do you know, have a lot of respect and appreciation for Coach Rick, but I think the energy that Kirby brings, at least from the outside looking in, it appears to be a little different. So I think it would have been cool to be able to see, you know, how a different regime came in and did what they, you know, they do. Keith, this has been great, man. Everybody, uh, go check out everything the Players Lounge ha- has going on. Best of luck with with everything. It's awesome to see. Absolutely, man. I appreciate you having me on. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Fox Sports RJ Young. RJ, how does this work now? Are, are you uh, Tom Brady's coworker? Like, do you get to say that? 
uh, I don't think we get to say that just yet, right? He's still playing for the Tampa Bay Bucks, and I think that means we're all rooting for the Tampa Bay Bucks over at Fox to some degree. But that was very cool and unexpected. Yeah, it's unbelievable to kind of think about the way that media has 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 changed. And and I know you are somebody that is you know asked to talk about a lot of different things. So I want to be able to get into a lot of different things with you. Um, with our respective roles, we we have to do a lot of ranking stuff, right? Like that's that's just kind of par for the course. Uh, so so I I really understand what goes into that process and how sometimes you'll come up with something and you're like looking back and thinking to yourself like why did I put this team at like five or six like what what am I doing but um, it, nobody ever looks at a ranking and says yep that's perfect but I, I wanted to play devil's advocate a little bit uh, because I know we have some disagreements with our post spring top twenty five so uh, for those who haven't seen RJ's by the way we we. Anytime you have a ranking that gets up on SaturdayDownSouth.com, that's a given. That's always going to happen. Um, but for those who haven't seen your specific rankings, the SEC teams that you have in your post-spring top 25, you got LSU at 25, Kentucky at 22, Ole Miss at 10, Arkansas at 6, A&M at 4, Georgia at 3, and Bama at 1. Arkansas at 6 is as high as I've seen, and I'm not quite as high on the Hogs uh, as, as you are, because I, I do have some questions about the alphas in the middle of that defense and whatnot, but why did, why did you have Arkansas at number six? Sam Pittman, quite honestly, right. Yes, and what sir. He's been able to do in a very, I like that. Uh, and what he's been able to do in a very short amount of time, I'm a huge Sam Pittman fan. I was very excited to see him get that job at Arkansas. And we're talking about a team that won nine games in the SEC West last year. That's no mean feat, right? And then you go in the Outback Bowl and you do what you did against a great Penn State squad. I love the addition of Drew Sanders. I love the addition of Landon Jackson. You got Jalen Catalan. Like, it's just, I love what Barry Odom's defense can do. It's about, can KJ Jefferson be KJ Jefferson once again? We know that Traylon Smith has since transferred to Texas Christian, right? Yeah, yeah. But they got backs back there. And if Jaden Hazelwood can give you any semblance of what Traylon Burks was. I don't have a hard time seeing Arkansas being able to peel off a couple of victories that we just don't expect them to get. And that's what's fun about the upcoming season. It hasn't happened yet. And you, like I, will throw these rankings out as soon as we start playing games all over again. But based on what the rosters look like, what the situation at health is, and what your transfer portal situation is, I really like Arkansas's continuity. I put a lot of emphasis on coordinators returning, quarterbacks returning, and a head coach that feels like he's got the wind at his back. And I dare say there is no coach that hasn't won a national championship with more of a win at his back than that guy in Fayetteville, and for good reason. That is an outstanding coach, an outstanding person. Yeah, and I, I won't disagree with you on that at all. I, I think uh, Arkansas fans seeing some of these preseason rankings like, wow, like to think that we're already at this place going into year three with Sam Pittman, just to have, be able to have that conversation for an eight months off season is is incredible in itself. Uh, A&M, you initially had them at two, mm-hmm. you, you dropped them to, to four in the in the post spring rankings. I think A&M has a legitimate championship window, 2023, 2024, maybe even 2025, depending on you know this class and how many of those guys stay and whatnot. But I think they're going to be the most overrated team in the country going into this season. You're, you're higher on A&M than anybody that I've seen. Tell me why I'm wrong and why I should be giving the Aggies a little bit more love. Recruiting, 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 and then you can develop, right? The one ding that I might give to the Aggies is they had a change at coordinator on the defense, right? They lose Mike Elko to Duke. And of course they bring in DJ Durkin from Ole Miss. I think that's going to be just fine. Devin A. Kane is, is a dude back there. I think you're going to be pretty decent at running back. But where I go with this is 
And this gets back to the Arkansas ranking. What did Arkansas do against A&M last year? They got to win, right? We're talking about also an A&M team that beat an Alabama team that played in a national championship game, right? And did that with a backup quarterback. I don't know that Haynes King is going to lose his job to Max Johnson because I thought Max Johnson, pretty good. Thought Haynes King was giving you a little bit more with his legs. We'll see how it goes. Got Connor Weigman back there. I think you're also talking about the greatest recruiting class of all time. One year after Alabama put together the greatest recruiting class of all time. And I don't understand why we're not really wanting to give that roster and what Jimbo Fisher has been able to accomplish in putting it together such credit. I mean, you know this better than most. I'm an Oklahoma guy, right? I'm an Oklahoma fan. So I have to take myself out of it, right? And look at what this is. And I see top to bottom, a team that can go, a team that can play, and a team that's always up for a challenge. They're hot and cold though. And I understand that's why some folks aren't as high on them. Like that Colorado game still, still bugs me and it bugs a lot of other people. But if they hit their stride and they hit their stride early, we're talking about them going to get another win against Alabama with a better quarterback and put themselves in contention to represent the SEC West, which for me is basically a de facto college football playoff game, right? Yeah. That's, that's how that's worked. So if you can get into the SEC championship game, there's no reason for me to believe you can't be one of the four best teams in all of college football. Some pushback on that. Okay. What terrifies me is what they lost in the front seven, mm. which I don't even think the NFL draft fully reflected how much production they've lost in, in that specific area and replacing Elko with DJ Durkin, which I'm not as sold on. I think Elko is a better defensive coordinator for my money than Durkin is. But like, when was the last time that we talked about a true freshman class being a key aspect of a preseason top five team? Like I go back to 2014 Ohio State. That was the first time maybe that we've ever seen a class like a sophomore class even have an impact, uh, like a significant impact where you looked across the board, you're like, oh my God, they have all these sophomores and they're the reason that they're winning a national championship. With AM, I don't think in football in college football we can expect a true freshman class to all of a sudden like step into a situation like this where they're the reason, they're a big reason why they're like a, a number five team in the country. So and then the other thing with Jimbo, we haven't seen a true freshman receiver go off yet in Jimbo Fisher's offense ever. I mean, think, think of some of the great guys that he's had in his offenses and it just never really works out. So everybody that's saying Evan Stewart's going to be the guy. I get the hype. I, I totally do. And he's got a path to playing time, but like things like that just kind of make me worried. And then the, the depth at pass catchers, but it, I, I always come back to this too. Like, are you developing first round talent? Jimbo Fisher has had one first round player at AM, which is wild to think about. It was Kenyon green this past year. Are you going to pick AM to reach the playoff in 2022? Are we heading in that direction? Are they going to beat Alabama? I wouldn't That's- pick them to beat Alabama this year. I had them to beat Alabama in the offseason last year, and then the Haynes King injury happened, and I backed off of that. Right. And they showed everybody what they could do at Kyle Field, right? I, I understand the trepidation in saying we're expecting a lot from a true freshman class. But we've seen it in spots, right? Uh, famously, Trevor Lawrence, 2018. We could talk about the roster, 2014 Ohio State. I think that's an outlier yeah. more than anything else. A lot of things broke for them that wouldn't break for anybody else. Uh, like the committee, really loving them some Ohio State. And Ohio State showing that you pay that off later on if you continue to be with them. The other part about this that I find interesting is why don't we want to give Evan Stewart the same sort of cultural cachet we give a Derek Stingley Jr.? Right. Hmm. That was a true freshman 
on a loaded defense, right? That wasn't really as good as we thought it was going to be, but was good enough to win a national championship. And I think that's what it's about. Can you be okay on defense? Because if you could be okay on defense and put up 50, it's a different ball game for you. I, again, I'll go back to Oklahoma 2018 horrendous defense, the Real worst bad. pass defense in football, still a playoff team because they can go out there and put up 45 when they want to. I'm not as big on what did you turn out in the NFL and as far as draft and draft talent, because I can never tell what the NFL is going to find valuable and not valuable. For instance, like we saw one quarterback get drafted in what was admittedly a weak quarterback draft, but it was Kenny Pickett who's the oldest of those dudes that we were all talking about. It's 24, turns 25 this year. To the Kenyon Green bit, that's the only dude that we were all looking at going, yeah, that dude's going to be that dude coming out. I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt also because of what Jimbo Fisher has accomplished at Florida State and what he has continued to say he's backed up at A&M. And I don't think that A&M fans want to keep seeing themselves be in this conversation of being overrated. And I think they're also changing the game with name, image, and likeness, right? So you're getting players that you probably wouldn't get elsewhere. And I'll add to this. They didn't really go to the portal nearly as much as I thought they would. That's the reason they got them. They had all these offers out there. They didn't have the roster space. You you know as well as I do. You will pull an offer if you want to pull an offer, right? Uh, I would also add to that. Like, for instance, there's no movement for them on Jordan Addison because they feel good. Right. We're all talking about what the pit wide receiver might do. AM's like, no, we're good. We're here at Addison to Alabama, Addison to SC, Addison to Texas. AM's going, no, no, we're loaded for bear this season in the SEC West. If we take care of our business, we'll be okay. I like that energy. Right. I like that confidence. I'm going to buy into that. They show me up, they show me up. But I'm right now, I'm all in on what AM can be. They beat Alabama, they automate the college football playoff. Right. That's full stop right there. That would be the answer to your question. And it's perfectly fair to also bring up that. And I, I've made this point throughout this entire offseason. Once you get outside of those top three spots, it's kind of like oh, Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, and then are everybody you, else. So many questions. Are you a dude that doesn't like the 14 playoff? Um, I'm okay with it. Okay. I'm okay with it. Okay. I, I'm also like admittedly. I'm not sitting here writing about the Pac-12 365 days a year and my interest level, and that is different. I don't have to sit there in January and go, man, it'd be nice to be covering these teams and like the the main teams I cover to actually still be playing. So I I answer that question probably admittedly in a a somewhat biased way. I always try and shoot it as straight as possible, but like I'm not one of these people that needs to see expansion, but I'm almost of the Greg Sankey mindset of admitting it'd probably be better for the sport. I don't expect the results to change, but I can respect the belief that getting more, more regions of the country involved or at least feeling like they have a chance is probably better for the sport. What about you? No, I, I asked that because I've heard some folks that cover the SEC, won't name names, but name they don't like even having a four-team playoff, right? They want to go back to, no, let's put two teams in a national championship game, call it good, or even just crown one from the regular season like we used to and take the bowl game into account. I'm for radical expansion, right? I want a 16-team playoff. I think it's stupid that the FCS has a 24-team playoff and they make it work and it's just fine. They play 11 games in the regular season and college football, you're going to play 12. And if you add those extra games, you're playing 16, right? You're not playing more than 
what one game more than the two teams that have to play for the national championship this year already play. And you can build in buys and get home and homes. It's about making other people feel as if they are included in the sport. That is what I'm after. I want to be as inclusive as possible. And if I know that my team, let's call it UTSA is having a magical season. Shout out Road Runners. Yeah. Right. Where they are absolutely doing the doggone thing with the schedule that is in front of them. I want to see that team in a playoff in the same way that we want to see a team like, what was it? St. Peter's this year in the NCAA tournament, make a run. Nobody expected St. Peter's to win a national championship. Did not expect it at all, but doggone it. It was fun. Now, what do we end up with? We ended up with some blue bloods playing for a national championship. That's probably going to be what it is. Yeah. So when I say expand the playoff, I'm always saying, hey, man, bring more people into the room, because I think that is really the harbinger for what is to come for our sport. Right. The more we close it off, the more we don't let people in, the more they're going to go elsewhere because there's competition. Right. We have to talk about this all the time. But look, the NFL's on Sunday. There are 32 teams. They're putting 14 of those in a playoff. Why can't we put 16 when we got 130? I just, it bothers me. And, and that's, that's my soapbox. And it's been my soapbox for a very long time. Connor. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there are a lot of people that would agree with you. I think there are a lot of people that would disagree with you. Mike Leach would probably be like, no, 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 let's, let's multiply that by four. We're going to go with the 64. That would work a lot better. Um, speaking of A&M, uh, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to, to talk to you about Kevin Sumlin because you write a lot about the USFL and it's, it's one of those things that I keep thinking about Kevin Sumlin and his decade that he's had and what these last 10 years have probably been like for him, because this is the 10 year anniversary of Johnny Manziel taking over the sports world. And I remember in 2013, the day that AM had that regular season finale against Mizzou, there was this, this relief that AM got this, this extension done with Sumlin. And, you know, there was this fear that he was going to go to the Houston Texans. They instead go with Bill O'Brien, James Franklin gets the Penn state job. And it's kind of like one of these wild sliding doors moment that doesn't really get talked about a ton, but probably should. I always wonder with someone though, could things have been different with him if the Manziel stuff had happened like in year three or year four at AM, where he was kind of building to that point instead of just setting this unreachable bar for himself? I don't think so. I think it all happened the way that it should have happened and, and did happen, quite honestly. I mean, I look at what the move to Johnny Manziel did for the sport. Like I credit Johnny Manziel would drive Nick Saban crazy enough to be like, okay, I want one. Like, yeah. it, think about that for a second. They used to play murder ball, right? Offensively. No, we're going to run the ball. We're going to play defense. And then that dude was dancing on him. And he said, okay, Lane, go get me one. And, and let's do that. And that's what they've been doing ever since. I mean, that's the reason why Jalen Hurts ends up at Alabama. It's the reason why you can't come to Alabama and not be able to move anymore at quarterback. I never thought I would see that from him, right? And it's made its way proliferating throughout the sport. I also found it interesting in that that 2012 season is particularly remarkable for me because I'm still a beat writer covering OU at the time and OU plays A&M in the Cotton Bowl. And it was a lot of fun, but the thing that always bothered me or the thing that I always wanted to hear was Johnny talk, right? Because nobody got to hear what Johnny had to say because Sumlin enforced his rule. Freshmen don't talk to the media. Well, bowl games are kind of awesome in that they make a rule that says you got to make every single player you bring available. What a concept. Right, right. So one of the first things that I did was go write a story about 
Landry Jones at the time, Johnny Manziel were both working with George Whitfield and what that had kind of done for their careers in college. And it was the first time that a microphone had been stuck in Johnny Manziel's face, along with like 40 other reporters who are all in front of the table. And I had just got my question in, answer it. And I'm trying to get away and I'm getting stomped on because everybody wants to talk to this dude. And Sumlin's over there behind just watching it and shaking his head because, I mean, he had to know that this was going to happen, but it was still, it felt surreal for him to see. Now, I also think that it ebbs and flows, right? Because we're talking about someone being great at Oklahoma, being great at Houston, having a great time at AM until he didn't, right? Arizona happens. And now he's in the United States Football League as a professional coach. And he's really having some of the sim- uh, some similar challenges in really trying to orient himself and his team. The thing that I find most interesting about it, though, is nobody talks about how good those defenses were because he was such an offensive-minded coach and they used to put up points, Case Keenum being one, Manziel being another. Right in here, he's got another defense that's outshining his offense, but he's handling it, right? And I'm fortunate I get to go back down there, really pick his brain at the halfway mark of the USFL and see what he's thinking, what other coaches are thinking. But I think that he's in a good spot, right? And he really enjoys what he's doing. The smaller roster fits him. He's come from this very big space that is college station, that is big time college football to a more intimate space where people are much more likely to want to not just help you, but just talk to you, treat you like a regular person as opposed to the dude that doomed their team. There is no swag copter for him to jump in in the USFL. And I think that has really brought football back home to a bunch of people that really wanted it, wanted it to be just basic. And my coaching players, are they playing hard? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Nobody's worried about what they're getting paid. Everybody's worried about trying to win games for the players getting good tape for the coaches really having a good experience. I mean, that's been the most fun for me with the USFL is getting to learn and hear from these coaches who I don't want to say let their hair down because they're still kind of fiery and they're tight, but you can see that they are enjoying this experience. And I think that change because of the culture of the USFL, as opposed to the pressure cooker that is the NFL, that is big time power five. I mean, I watched a game in which Larry Fedora is all in his quarterback's chili in the final game, uh, play of the game. They go win it, and it was just as celebratory for him as it was, what, 2011 when he was at UNC and they went on that tear? I think they lost to Clemson. In the was it 2015? 2015. 2015. Thank you. Yeah. Not 2011. 2015. But the elation's still there, right? And I love seeing that because, I mean, again, I'm an underdog kind of dude, right? So knowing that guys are taking this opportunity to reinvent themselves and do something different, like a Sumlin, like a Larry Fedora, like a Skip Holtz, guys that have never been professional head coaches before, really has charged me up as well. Um, But to your question, nah, I I think Johnny had to happen when Johnny happened. Now, we could also talk about what happened with Cliff Kingsbury. Right? It's a great part of it that nobody talks about that. Like that's him leaving and how that impacted the someone offense and, and him going to Texas Tech because you kind of look back and you're like, well, what's the big difference between 2012 and 2013? It's unfair to just say it was Cliff, but he was a significant piece of that 2012 offense. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And the number of people that someone has touched, basically molding together what he has learned from different guys. Like one of the things that I think is remarkable about his journey is that dude's a linebacker at Purdue. Right. And his first job is basically coaching wide receivers and then learning to run a spread offense with guys like Drew Brees 
at quarterback while he's coaching wide receivers, going to Wyoming to run it better, right? Going to Oklahoma to see what Mike Leach is doing, getting what you might call uh, basically the best, I think, version of Mike Leach's offense in the NFL in Cliff Kingsbury and seeing all those things come together and seeing how it's still football. Like, I guess this is my favorite story about someone in the USFL as it relates to uh, Cliff Kingsbury. So I hadn't heard this term before Coach Sumlin said it, but you can hear the mic'd up parts of the USFL on the broadcast with Fox. And when they go Hail Mary, they don't say Hail Mary. They don't say four verticals. They say bombers. And I, I get tickled to death. Going, okay, so yeah, we're just going to throw a bomb down there and we're going to hope it detonates and catches. And apparently that's <laughs> something that came from Kingsbury back in the day. It's like, nah, we need a better name for this. Let's uh, because what's a Hail Mary? It's a prayer. That's not hope. Let's just go down there and hope we detonate something. Let's throw bombers. So now whenever they're getting, uh, what is it? Nearing the end of the half, half the distance. Hey, look, go bombers here. Four verts going down the field. We'll see if we can come down with it. I just, I love that. That's tickles me to death. That's everybody calling the play in NFL blitz to bomb that that's, that's just it right there. It's the same right. exact thing. And that's, that's all you're hoping for. You're like, all right, it's like third and 45 right now. Just the bomb. We got to make this happen. Not, not a Hail Mary. Yes, I agree. It needs a, it needs a, it definitely needs a pivot. Um, what's starting to feel like a, a more realistic possibility kind of shifting gears a little bit. Deion Sanders getting a power five job. Everybody has looked at what, what just happened with national signing day. And they're like, all right, Dion's got to be the next Florida state coach. Are you on board with that? Or is that something where you're like, ah, I think Dion's actually going to stay at Jackson state for a bit. And he's going to kind of see this thing through for, for a little while longer. I first thing I would add to that is why do we keep saying Florida state as if somebody else would not want Dion Sanders to right. be their head coach right now. Right. And then this is a college football thing, right? We say, Hey, where's your alma mater? Well, his alma mater is not actually Florida state. He graduated from Tougaloo. People forget, Good point. That, Good right? Point. Uh, so like, if, you, if you're going to send him to a, another school where he's an alumnus, he'd be at another HBCU. But that said, he's having a good time at Jackson State. And Jackson State has embraced him and embraced his way of doing business and his get downs. Matter of fact, the only time that I heard Dion a little bit upset about what is going on at his program as it relates to the fans around Jackson State is he introduced what I think is some absolutely outstanding flair or reintroduce some outstanding flair, the red accents on the uniforms. So for those of you that don't know, the Navy blue and white is really what Jackson state's colors are. That's what people know Walter Payton and sweetness for Robert Brazil, the heyday of the late sixties into the early seventies, when Jackson state was putting out dudes, the way that Alabama puts out dudes. Now WC Gordon comes along and Along with being athletic director and baseball coach, he's football coach, and he introduces the red accents, and they go on a tear of winning some swag titles through the, I think, the mid-90s, right? So Dion gets the job and wants to make this an attractive place and make them look good on television, especially knowing that they get to play spring football on national television. So they reintroduce the red accents, and I think it's fly. But he caught what he called, his quote was, I caught such bull junk over the red accents and I fell out laughing because I brought it up thinking that this was great because I got the red, uh, the red bib with the white JSU and the blue top in my living room. And I really love that hat. It's hard to find. It's hard to get. And he's going, nah, now I don't hear nothing about the red, uh, the red accents because we good. <laughs> like, yes, they won 11 games, right? They won 11 games. 
And they basically lost the Black College Football National Championship because they lost to South Carolina State. And there's been some controversy over whether or not South Carolina State has the Black College Football National Championship or it should be Florida A&M who had beaten South Carolina State early in the year. Some real old school bowl alliance type of stuff where we're doing 93 Notre Dame, I guess, would be another uh, example is Notre Dame, Florida State, who won the national championship. But I don't know that Dion's in a rush to go anywhere. And I don't think he should be. I think he's at a great place. I think he's at a good spot. And he's proven he can recruit to this place. That was the deal. It's not just getting dudes. It's getting dudes from other schools that had power five offers that just didn't find their way there. It's turning guys like James Houston into all Americans. It's getting dudes like number one overall recruit, Travis Hunter, who's probably going to play both ways. And who is showing that if that ball's in the air and it's near him, he's probably going to come down with it. That's fun. You're seeing Shadur grow into himself. I mean, that was an FCS Jerry Rice award winner, right? Along with his dad winning coach of the year. You're going to have to come with something pretty doggone special, I think, to pry him out of Jackson. Now, I don't think he's there for the long term because no coach has proven that he's there for the long term. This even goes back to Nick Saban, who was as transient as they come before he got to Alabama. Only at Alabama have we seen him kind of settle down and put in uh, put down roots, as it were. But I think if Dion gets the right opportunity, he'd be within his rights and privilege to go take it. And then Jackson State would do what most mid-majors do, right? Which is go get the next rising star and make that guy your head coach. I mean, I'm a graduate of the University of Tulsa. That is our uh, that is our way of life, right? It is cool. Steve Cragthorpe, come on down. Todd Graham, come on down, right? We'll continue to do that. We had guys come through that really didn't have great offers to begin with. So I think Incarnate Words, yeah, G.J. Kinney is Incarnate Words head coach now. He was quarterback at Tulsa when I was there. He was <laughs> on the same team with Brendan Marion, who's wide receiver coach at Texas. I'm saying you come to this space, you learn how to be a football coach, and then you go do what you got to do. I think Jackson State could be the same place. Now, my question to you is, what would it be like if Arch Manning decided to take a trip to Jackson State? Not saying that he even permits or signs. What would it do for the profile of Jackson State? And then would that still be the kind of place that Deion Sanders wants to leave? It's a fascinating question because, you know, if you recall, Kayvon Thibodeau went there. Went, or it wasn't a visit to Jackson State, but he went. To, I can't remember which HBCU he went to, He went on a visit to, but that's when he's the number one overall recruit in the country. And that in itself was a big, big deal to be like, whoa, th- that's, think, that's a game changer. Oh, man, it's not Kayvon Thibodeau. It's, it's USC's um, defensive end. Number one recruit in the 2021 class. He had Howard on his seven. And I think that's where he made his visit. Corey Foreman. That's yes. what it is. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because this was a little bit ahead of Kayvon's time, as I believe it. But that was a big deal. Right. But now this is also at a time when you're putting some spotlight on HBCUs for a number of reasons, like Kaylin Newton, right? Coming from Howard to Auburn. That yeah. was a big deal for, for HBCUs. But your point is well taken, right? Which is to say, how long until I think Richard Young was even looking at Florida AM here for a little bit and might still be right? Well, we'll see how that goes. But man, we can go talk recruiting till we're blue in the face if you let me, Connor. Like, (laughs) I don't know that that's what you want to do, though. (laughs) 
Well, let me let me ask you this. We're we're seeing more schools like Notre Dame and UCLA finally schedule HBCUs. And mm. for a bit there, I think there was this fear in the power five of like, well, crap, we don't want to run into a Steve McNair, a Jerry Rice, a Walter Payton. And all of a sudden this guy has their coming out party and it's at our expense. And I think that was the feeling for a long time, like fair, fair or not. Like, I think a lot of schools operated that way. I mean, I know last year, Auburn, Arkansas, Mississippi, Mississippi State, they all played against HBCUs. Why do you think that resistance is maybe still there for some programs? And do you think that's changing nationally in the coming years? I don't think they're afraid of any one player, quite honestly. And, and even when that has happened, it hasn't really translated into wins for that other team. It just means that we're aware of that player on that team. To the point about Notre Dame and Tennessee State, though, I think that that really is a watershed moment for that program, right? Because up until they made that schedule announcement, they and USC were the only two programs among the Blue Bloods to have never scheduled an FCS opponent. And there's a contingent of Notre Dame fans that really like that distinction. But as I talked to some of my friends who went to Notre Dame and are huge Notre Dame football fans are going... It's got a lot more to do with we don't really have anything to gain here because they're going to be coming back from their game in Dublin, Ireland and play the very next week. Now, as I understand it, there was some lobbying within the administration to make that a bye week. And Marcus Freeman said, no, I want to play somebody. Yeah. And an Ohio State alumnus. They got an Ohio State alumnus as head coach and a name brand as head coach in Eddie George at Tennessee State. They were also very classy in that Dr. Mickey Allen and Eddie George joined both Marcus Freeman and Notre Dame athletic director, Jack Swarbick in announcing this Jerome Bettis showed up and asked what I thought was a pillowy soft question, but was, I mean, he was there, right? His presence is meaningful. I think that more than anything else, what you're doing here is you are opening up your fan base to be more inclusive. Again, I'll hit on it. I'm rooting for Notre Dame and Marcus Freeman, mostly because I've been on the Marcus Freeman bandwagon more or less since he got to Cincinnati. After the first year, I saw everything I needed to see. I wanted that man to get an opportunity. Young, fiery, handsome, players love him. And he got that opportunity at Notre Dame. And then Brian Kelly decided to get out, out of one of the better jobs in college football to take what I think is the best job in college football. But that's another discussion altogether. All to say, now, hey, look, there's a lot of fans that might not have been rocking with Notre Dame that are going to be rocking with Notre Dame, not because of who the head coach is or who the quarterback is, but because, yo, they brought an HBCU in there that I kind of like, I don't expect my HBCU to win, but I enjoy that they get that experience of playing at Notre Dame stadium and they are getting recognized for what they could be in scheduling this game and being the first FCS opponent that Notre Dame plays elsewhere. I think it's more about, can you get your band to travel? Right. That's what I yeah. hear most of all is, is Grandma going to come? Like, is the band going to come? Right. Can we get the marching 100? Can we get the Southern jukebox? What, what can we can we get a band performance at halftime? Because that's what we want to see. Your football team is fine. Here's this money and take this. But also to your to this point, you'll notice that Jackson State doesn't have an FBS opponent on its schedule in 2022. Yeah, because they also aren't looking to go and just get their heads beat in. Right. Well, no, you're not going to pay us to beat us down. We're going to schedule people we think we can beat. Because we like being undefeated just as much as you like being undefeated. That's where I think you're about to see the tension, right? Because you're getting to see HBCUs grow back into themselves. And they'll, no, 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 we got some pride about ourselves too. 
And yeah, you should run the risk of getting beat by us if you schedule us. If we can't do that, then perhaps we shouldn't play you. But that's really an interesting and ongoing discussion. This has been great. Uh, I want to get you out of here with five rapid fire questions. Does that work for you? Sure, man. Sweet. All right. Uh, Who reaches the playoff next? Brent Venables or Lincoln Riley? Brent Venables. Unbiased take. (laughs) I mean, he's set up to do it, right? I I actually agree with you on that. Okay. I'll just give you credit. Okay. All right. Uh, right. Okay. How early is too early to say that a five and seven team is back? Oh, man. Seeing as I just said, Texas is back. um, I guess the day after they finish the season is too early. Yeah, probably. Probably. Okay. Uh, I tell you the, to bet the house on one of these guys winning a Heisman before their college career is over, but you mm. can only pick one. Mm. CJ Stroud, Quinn Ewers, Arch Manning. Who would be your guy? CJ Stroud. Mm. So basically you think CJ Stroud's going to win the Heisman next year? Yeah. I, I, it would be hard for me to see Bryce winning it twice, yeah. right? That's not a precedent that Heisman likes to put up, but you know, if Bryce goes off and he can win it by all means, but CJ's loaded, man. He's got, he's got a 1200 yard rusher behind him. He's got Jackson Smith and Jigba with 1600 yards over there. And we're talking about two number one wide receivers who don't really get spoken about much in a Mecca Egbuka, Julian Fleming, joining Marvin Harrison jr. They're if they can protect him and it seems like they can. Yeah. I got a hard time seeing that dude not winning the Heisman. Uh, what's your coldest take that you've had? Ooh, coldest take. Let's see. And like, I'm, I'm friends work? with, I'm buddies with, with Fred Siegel who runs um, old takes exposed. So I'll just text him, whatever it is. He, he's got me. He's got As me he, on something. Uh, so you'd have to ask him, but I, man, Eric, how do you, how do you define cold take? Uh, one that just aged horribly. Like oh, uh, God. you looked back on it and like, Hey, I had, <laughs> I had Clemson winning a national championship this past year, which sort of negated the fact that I had Cincinnati in the playoff. Like, I picked Clemson to win it all when they had their worst season in seven years. I'd say that's a pretty cool take. Oh, I, then we got to go with 2021 Oklahoma. That's the year. That okay. was that was the year they were going to win the national championship. And I've been saying that for two plus years. <laughs> no. So that one, let's go with that one right okay. there. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, last one for you. I, I think that dumb steer Bevo is the worst mascot in sports. Um, can you defend that bully? Yeah, I can. It's not dumb. I can eat it. Great, That's great point. That's I'm, great I'm good with point. that. Stanford's got a tree. What can uh, I do with a tree? I can't do anything with a tree. They at least troll people, though. I'll give them credit for that. And that's and, that's kind of what they do. Bevo just bullies people, dogs, specifically Ugga, that aren't his own size. And I don't really I don't really jive with that. I don't. Look, I look at Ugga and I go, OK, so which one are you? What? I, I, uh, are you I hating count. on Ugga right now? I lose count. I oh, come on. I, I, hey, look, man, I, I, I can't do much with a bulldog. I mean, you ever heard, have you ever smelled a bulldog fart? Did you see that? Did you see that Auburn game? All right. He's, he's chomping at the bit. All right. You want to talk about somebody that actually Isn't knows how to defend dog his house air conditioned. So he needs it. Come on. You can't look, have man. that thing. Sitting I got, out there I, I got uh, an Anatolian Mastiff mix. That's 90 pounds. Basically he's as tall and as big as I am. Right. And in Baku, basically would look at me crazy if I was like, hey, uh, I'm going to air condition your doghouse. He's going to be like, for what? It's a bulldog. Bulldogs Why? need that. They need it. If you say so. If you say <laughs> so. But but I'm telling you, man, I look at Ugga and I'm going, I just, I don't feel it, man. I, I get more menacing vibes from Smokey. 
All right. I, uh, I mean, I guess like menacing though. We want to talk about Revelation. Put gas on that gamecock. Hmm. Oh. Okay. That and don't call it a chicken. Don't do that. Don't don't make that mistake. <laughs> oh man. Uh, we could be here dunking on mascots the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. All right, RJ. We're gonna have to do. Uh, this has been great. We're gonna have to just do like a mascots pod uh, during the season or something. We'll do this again sometime, man. I really appreciate it. Connor, thanks so much for having me. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. Figuring out, we're talking coffee. Well, I love coffee. Mm-hmm. I love coffee. You love coffee too, don't you? Yes. I texted you when we talked about this segment. I was like, you're going to judge the crap out of me because you have a very, like, like very, what's, what's the word are you? Like very planned out life. And the amount Regimented. of money, yes. The amount of money I waste on coffee, I thought would just disgust you. But I'm glad that you also love coffee to a, to a degree because it's- Whoa, 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 whoa. How much, how much are we talking here? I mean, like, uh, a lot. Like, I probably, like, I go to Starbucks at least. Like, it's not like a real problem. Like, two or three times a week, probably. And get, like, you know, five or six to, so we're talking probably, oh, wow, that is- <laughs> What's, what's your everyday coffee routine? Oh man, so okay, so I have, okay. So I bought two cold brew makers from Amazon and I, I brew my own cold brew. So half Same. of, so okay, good, okay. So like I said, this could have gone sideways if you were like, well, you're a weirdo, but no. So like I literally have like about two gallons of just cold, not two gallons, about one gallon total of cold brew sitting there that I brew every week. It actually saves a lot of money. You just buy coffee grounds, you shake it up, you do that type of it's thing. It's super easy. Yes. I've known it for a couple of years. I absolutely love yes. it. Yes, so then, so then that's my main thing. And then I'll, whenever I'm out, I. You know, I work from home, don't go out of town. But whatever I do, I'm like, you know, haven't gone out of town, time to hit a Starbucks. So I, I yeah. switch between those two. So it's not as that egregious, yeah. Yeah, I, the, the cold brew has, has kind of changed the game a little bit. And I, I used to kind of think if you make your own cold brew from home that it was some overly complicated process, it's not. It's essentially like making sun tea. Yes. All right, it's, it's really similar. You don't even need electricity to be able to do it. You just need filters, <laughs> you need a little, contraption that's like 20 bucks yep. or something like that on Amazon. It's not expensive at all. You buy your coffee grounds. It's that that's the go-to every day for me. I, I was one of those people that for, for the first like 22 years of my life did not get the love for coffee, did not understand it. I thought adults were kind of psychotic to drink so much of it. And now my biggest, one of my biggest regrets, I shouldn't say my biggest, but it's up there. One of my biggest regrets as an adult is that when I was going through high school and college, I didn't drink coffee. And I, I feel like I, I absolutely should have. And look, I'm 5'8 here, 5'9 with shoes, listed 5'10. Shout out to the Giants. They listed our guy Wandale at 5'11 on their minicamp roster. Let's go. Wandale, Wandale measured at 5'8 at the combine. And I'll, I'll tell you this, <laughs> spent a little bit of time around Wandale and Lexington. As a 5'8 guy, I can confirm that he's part of our club, okay? <laughs> Yes, he absolutely is. You're being marginalized. This is 5'8 guy erasure when they tried to so they tried to size him up. No, no, he was a third round draft pick off his merits. He doesn't need to be supersized to make it the NFL, okay? Yeah, I, I didn't say to his face, Wandale, you realize we're like the same exact size and you're listed. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I think he might have been listed at 5'8 in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I, I might be wrong. Stoops doesn't that. seem like a guy who would lie about height either. He's just like, why would I do that, son? You got to come to terms with yourself eventually. Young sound tough. Yeah. That's the way they do it. <laughs> But anyway, um, what are we talking about? Coffee, that's right. Yeah. I, I was a late bloomer to a certain extent with coffee. I had it sparingly when I needed to kind of get that boost. Like those, those days, I remember early at the SDS offices, that would be one of those days if I was like 
watching college football all day on Saturday and I'm going into the SDS offices, I would stop at Starbucks or something like that and, and get a, like, you know, basically like a, a large drink to, to kind of last me throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And, but ever since kind of then, I started having it every day, like age 26 or so. I'll never go back. It's, I don't remember the last time I had a day without coffee. And I, I like certain things more than others. I'm, as we said, cold brew guy, that's mm. that's my go-to. We got our own little, um, like a milk frother as well. So you can Ooh. make foam on it. You can kind of just make lattes every morning. And Lauren does the hot coffee with the Keurig. I, I have no problem drinking black coffee, none whatsoever. I will do it when I visit home or something like that. If I'm visiting my mom, if I'm vis- visiting Lauren's parents, black coffee, that's, that's fine. I don't need any cream or anything like that. When was the last time you had a cup of black coffee? Oh, never. Uh, my mom, <laughs> Cajuns drink black coffee, by the way. They hate, they hate. Sure. yeah, that's my biggest non-Cajun thing is like, whenever I get around the Cajuns, I'm the only one, like give me two, three creams, sugars, like load my, I want to taste the dessert. I'll be honest with you. And like all my uncles will look around at me. All right, son, yeah. Okay, but I always fear being in that situation in which that's not available. Yeah. And it's just, Black coffee's all you got. So you're like Bear Grylls. Yeah. You're building your tolerance in case you're just ever stranded in the wilderness. <laughs> uh, yes and no. Yes and no. I, my, my introduction to coffee was was those r- really high sugar Starbucks drinks. Yeah. Having an, a salted caramel mocha. That was kind of the first thing where I, I drank it and said, wait, this is coffee? Yep. And then kind of the more you experience, the more things you have, it's like alcohol. You know, sometimes like you, you start off with something that's a little bit more, you know, over the top and you're not just sitting there starting off with like the the worst tasting uh, light beer you could possibly have or something like that i, I at least th- that's that's the way that i i kind of approached it and then quickly realized oh yeah i have no problem drinking black coffee it's not an issue for me i don't really care about like the bitterness or whatever if there's stuff available i'll have it but i'm not i'm not gonna not have it if it's you know not available or something like that I think this is bad, and I want to rid myself of this this thought that I have. Whenever I, I see an over-the-top Starbucks drink, I think back to when you and I were on our way back from IMG. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're coming back on I-4, and we stopped uh, we stopped just outside of Tampa. Mm-hmm. And uh, we stopped at the Starbucks. I still remember where exactly this Starbucks was, because I passed by it a few times since. And uh, you told me, you're like, don't judge me for what I'm about to order. <laughs> I think that IMG story was the X factor of like me kind of growing, like maybe both of us, I don't know, but like kind of like growing up into like in terms of being a professional. Cause I remember being done with that and being like, this is next level. There's a lot of moments like that within that story, but yeah, I've evolved a lot since then. It's definitely a much simpler order now, I'll tell you that. All right, that's good. And, and to, be, to be fair, like, I'm not hating on those orders. I'm not, I'm not because every once in a while they're good. There's it's a, a celebration order, menu. exactly. It's a celebration order. It's a celebration order. I do the thing now though, where if I if I'm at, I'm in a place where I don't typically order coffee, and then I'm kind of like, oh, I'd like this flavor, this flavor, this flavor, or whatever, and then I'm saying it to them, and then they repeat back to me what it is. I'm like, did I basically just order a milkshake? And if they say yes, <laughs> then I order something else. I love that. So like it's it's probably too early. I did that at Chick Fil A like I don't know sometime a few months ago. It's like I'm not really feeling a milkshake. I just kind of wanted something you know more of like a, just kind of a standard mocha or something like that. But yeah, I, I like a lot of different kinds of coffee, and I know we have a ton of different opinions that we're gonna get to here. Let me say this really quick because you're gonna love this. So Brittany joined the gym and she's been working out early in the morning, and she's never been an early morning person. And she texted me the other day at noon and was like, "Yep, I get it." 
And it was just like that meme about like, grow up, bro, because she hates coffee. And I was like, yeah, I mean, if you're up at like the crack of dawn and you're working until like six, there's gonna come a point here on Dude or One where it just hits you in the face. And like, she's never really had that because she just like wakes up, goes to work, gets off. And I was like, yeah, no, this is it. This is, this is what this lifestyle is like. There's, there's certain bliss about being regimented and knowing when that part of the day is gonna come. Mm -hmm. And coffee kind of takes care of that for you. Yeah. That's what we'll say about that. All right, um, okay. I asked the questions, how many cups a day, hot or cold, Starbucks, yeah or nah, when's the latest in the day that you'll drink coffee and then any coffee horror stories? Will, when is the latest in the day that you'll drink coffee? I'll never stop. I'll get a coffee after dinner, I don't care. Will you really? Yeah, you know they offer Dang. like a fancy restaurant, so you want a coffee? I'm like, yeah, sure. Sure. It doesn't, it doesn't keep you up or anything like that? No, I grew up in like the Warcraft slash Monster Energy drink generation, bro. I'm immune to caffeine mm. at this point. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I'm one of those people that I, I typically try and avoid it after three o'clock. Mm -hmm. Anything after that, I'm like, ah, I gotta kind of think about the structure of my day and the way that would break down. And But I do like having, you know, maybe maybe every once in a while, like on the weekend or something like that, we'll go, we'll grab coffee out or something like that. and kind of early, early-ish afternoon, little pep, just when, just exactly when you need it. Mm -hmm. All right, Daniel Priest says, didn't drink coffee until I went to war in Iraq. Okay. I thought, yeah, all right, didn't think we were gonna get that with our first answer today. Um, Daniel says, I thought, what do people drink when cold and tired? Three cups a day, no Starbucks, the cheaper the better, and I like my coffee like I like my women. Bitter. <laughs> <laughs> Love that one, yeah. What a great answer. If you're, if you're one of those people who responds in the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group and you always feel like your responses are really, really long, let that response be an example for how to pack a punch into a short response. Yep, that's what we're looking for. Hunter Raglan says, two cups max, prefer cold, but hot is good too. Nah, Starbucks is overpriced and overrated. Horror story is my wife's coffee. 90% milk, 10% coffee. Milk is, is a nice, uh, I don't, I don't want to say it's it's got the same impact of creamer, but that's that's what I do pretty much every morning. I have the same ratio of coffee to milk in in like my my cold brew, and then we'll put like our our foam stuff. Like we do like a pumpkin foam on top of it. Are you a cow milk guy? Or you go like oat, or what's your milk choice? I I'm I'm pretty locked into the cow for now. <laughs> Sorry. Locked into the cow. How else to be? Yeah, I feel like I want to switch now. That's a, that's great branding. Yeah, look, I'm not. I don't hate, okay, so when we were in, uh, when we were in Nashville, uh, Ryan and I went to this coffee place <clears throat> before, uh, before they, they finished the half marathon. Top three worst coffee experience of my life. Went to this coffee place that was like so uppity, way, way massively overpriced. I mean, I think we paid like, I think we paid like 15 bucks Oof. for to-go coffee for like a standard order, no food or anything like that with it. and. Ryan, I, I got almond milk and then Ryan got oat milk. His was horrendous. Couldn't even drink it. It was one of the worst things I've, I have, I have consumed mm -hmm. in a long time. It was terrible. So like people hate on Starbucks because they say like it's overpriced over rate. Like I just think like Starbucks still tastes pretty good. Yeah. It, it is a little bit on the higher side, but you go to some of these local places where you're paying even more and you're t kind of telling yourself sometimes, and I'm not, I'm not saying with all local places, there are a lot of local places that I think are great. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of the things that Lauren and I like to do when we're going to a, like a, a place that we maybe haven't been to before, if we're staying downtown Chicago or something like that, we're like, we wanna go to a local coffee place. It's what we like to be able to do in the morning, great way to kind of start the day. But some of these places that you go to, you're just like, for what? 
This yeah. isn't even good. Yeah, I think, so I'll say this too, like I, I think one of my favorite ways to support local business is coffee. I think that, you know, that's a very, it's a good uh, business that anyone can get into. I accidentally went to a uh, like alt-right Trump coffee shop the other day in Atlanta. That was wild. Uh, I've been to like all kinds of different- I've heard of that place actually. <laughs> I, I, I've heard of that place. Yeah, yeah. I walked in there and I, there, everything was named after famous Republicans. It was a wild time. Good coffee, I'll say it. But anyway, so, so point being like, so I've been to like all these different like coffee shops and, uh, and that's one of my favorite like small businesses because it feels like a lot of people are just like, I want a business, but I don't know what to do. So I'm gonna have a uh, have a like coffee shop and shout out to the Reed Shop and Vinings in Atlanta. Uh, have you ever been to Austin's Coffee in Orlando? I have not. We're specifically in Orlando. It's, it's over by uh, the college, Rollins. It's one of the most insane places you'll ever go to in your life. It's still the way it oh, was. Winter Park. When I was yeah, there. Yeah. Yes. You need to go there at night. It's one of the most insane places you'll ever see. They have board games, they have movies, they have like, live music, it's insane. It's I, I went there a bunch of years in college, but anyway, local coffee shops are like my favorite places on earth. This is what I'm missing out on by not having coffee after dinner. There you go. Cool yeah. places like that. If you want to go to a place where you're watching people argue about like classic rock and play in like spades and that's <laughs> Austin's. Just over caffeinated people. Oh yes. Screaming <laughs> about things they care about. It's great. Yes, exactly. Uh, Michael Dark says, my wife and I hate coffee. We'll stop by the gas station every morning before work and get a big fountain diet Coke. Our coworkers always stink up the teacher bathroom with their... Okay. <laughs> Adventure on this podcast. Yeah, with their coffee bowel movements, and uh, it makes the the whole hallway smell worse than a middle school locker room. It's Good. a great reference there. Middle school locker room is an all time bad stench. It really is. I still can distinctly um, remember what the middle school locker room smelled like before the age where like guys know that they should be putting on deodorant mm -hmm. every single day. Axe, yeah, axe generation, bro. Come on now, we're part of the axe generation. Yeah, um, <laughs> rough. Great reference there. Look. This, uh, substituting Diet Coke or something like that, I know a lot of people that do that, my in-laws do that, they're, they're not coffee people, it's Diet Coke in the morning. I never have craved Diet Coke in the morning, even when I used to drink a lot of Diet Coke. I've never, for whatever reason, like I like cold coffee, it's not the cold drink thing. I, I think it's maybe it's the carbonation thing. I've never fully got around to that. I, I haven't, I, I, don't, I don't drink pop anymore. I gave that up a while ago, trying to like lose weight and whatnot. But even when I consumed way too much Diet Coke or Mountain Dew or whatever, I never got that feeling in the morning of, I'm gonna crack open a Diet Coke at like 8.30. I don't know, is that is that like an acquired taste or something like that? Okay, so I think Michael is a very cool guy and I'm not necessarily saying this about him, but I find drinking sodas in the morning way more like hardcore. Drinking sodas in the morning is like whenever you go to school and there'll be a fight at 7 a.m. That's how my taste buds feel when they get hit by oh. some acidic Diet Coke at like 8 a.m. That's it, yeah, maybe that's it. And, and coffee's kind of a little bit of an easier way, but when you have an experience like that, or you just kind of, that's that's all you can think about, that's all you associate it with, I think it's a little bit tougher. Mm -hmm. You knew those teachers when you were in elementary school who had coffee breath, Oh yeah. and the entire classroom was going to smell like coffee, and you'd think to yourself, I can't drink this yet, or at least I'm not, I'm not allowed to at home. If I went up to my mom as a fourth grader and said, pour me a cup of Joe, would you? I think she would probably give me a hard no on that. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's not alcohol, but I, I do think that the, the childhood associations with coffee definitely play an impact as to whether or not you end up drinking it or not. Oh yes. Okay, we've got, um, let's 
go with this one from uh, Tiffany R. Tiffany says, at least two cups a day. I drink it hot at home or iced if I'm getting it at Dunkin' or Starbucks. Yeah, to Starbucks. Uh, they put one in my office at work and it hasn't been great for my wallet. I'll drink an iced coffee up until about 4 p.m. Uh, my husband's horror story would probably be on road trips. I like to get him to stop at Chick-fil-A for breakfast and then Starbucks for coffee if there's one nearby. Sounds high maintenance, but he doesn't complain to me at least. Oh. Elite road trip snacks right there. Um, stops, I should say, not, not really snacks, but look, Starbucks is convenient. It is, it, it really is. And I'm not crazy about everything, uh, but uh, I tend to definitely be more yaw than nah with that. And if they put it, if, if I worked in an office setting and there was a Starbucks in that building. I'm quitting. <laughs> it's, I'm out. It's not ending well. 400 pounds. It's, dude, it's, it's just not. You look at the Starbucks nutrition facts sometimes, I made the mistake of doing that like six years ago probably, mm -hmm. about six, seven years ago. Bad idea, just don't do it, just don't do it. Consider it a treat, out of sight, out of mind. But yes, I would be very much in that camp of, of probably sneaking down to Starbucks, that mid-afternoon lull, give, give me a drink, give me through the rest of the day. I'd be doing that all the time. I think also that's the power stack, right? It's it's uh, Starbucks and Chick-fil-A. If you find a, an exit on the interstate that is both of those, and you can Gold. hit both, if you get the apps out, if you get the apps out, when you see the sign and you go, boom, get those mobile orders going, you can get out of there in 10 minutes, that's cruising is what that is. Tiffany brings up a good point though about feeling high maintenance because usually if you're making a stop, you're trying to you're trying to check all your boxes. That's why gas stations have food variety. We do the gas station figuring out. Right. Um, that's why they have so much varieties because you want to stop once. You don't typically want to stop at your coffee place and then stop at your food place. And that's why Chick Fil A tries to check that box for you. Mm -hmm. And they have they have coffee there. Chick Fil A coffee decent. Yeah, had some good experiences. Nothing particularly to write home about. It checks that box if that's what I need, but it's not something that I'm actively seeking out. Maybe I just haven't found the right drink yet at Chick-fil-A. Maybe that's gotta happen, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Emery says, there is a whiskey Facebook group that I'm in that has a rule that says the best whiskey is the one you like, however, or the best whiskey is the way that you like it however you like to drink it. I think that rule also applies to coffee. Most days are three cup days. I personally will drink good coffee, fire department coffee, spirits infused with coffee for the win, thanks to Jay Woody. Uh, if I'm drinking plain Jane folders, uh, Folgers or something, uh, I will use cream and no sugar. I drink iced coffee, cold brew, espresso, lattes. If it tastes good, it has God's cocaine, which is caffeine, I drink it. I love you like, making the decision to self-censor yourself as you read these things. I think that one slides through, I think that's fine. That's, that's really hard. People know what that is at this point. Yeah. We don't need to have that conversation. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty similar in that regard. I, I think that, that being able to, to kind of mix it up is key. If you're, if you're one of those people that just wants to have the same thing every single day, you'll probably hit at least one point maybe later in life where you'll look up and say, I wonder what else is kind of out there. Mm -hmm. And maybe you'll experiment then, or maybe you won't. And maybe you'll just be locked in. But Variety's the spice of life. Emery's got plenty of that. Also, shout out to Emery. You talked about like getting their breaks from Jay and everything. Everybody in this so, this Facebook group is so cool, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm I'm going to see going to Savannah. This we're gonna go see a concert. And Emery like invited me to come out on his boat and everything. That's awesome. I just I I love y'all, man. That's that's the you know that's all I gotta say. Dang, look at you, look at you, man. Yeah, Emery's always always good to be able to to 
to, to kind of throw that out there. Hey, you come, you come to Savannah, mm-hmm. come, come let me know, something like that. I need to get to Savannah. That's one of those places that's semi-local. It's more like a four-hour drive from us, but need to be able to get to. That'll be a great time, I'm sure. Um, Jay Woody says, uh, I literally have a problem. We lived in Miami and I was introduced to Cuban coffee and I'm just <laughs> never going back. I make a mocha pot that I use a French press when I'm uh, slumming it in my favorite machine on earth right now, my Nespresso espresso machine. I can't afford the real deal yet, so I do the pod, double espresso with three sugars every morning before I get the kids ready, double espresso after I get home. Every time I come downstairs, another double. <laughs> I go through usually six to eight pods of caffeinated before noon. Oh my gosh. I then switch to decaf and do another eight to 10 pods. If I use a mocha instead, I can take the place of three or four of those pods. After the kids go to bed, I drink two more cups usually and uh, study my hacking stuff or Linux. I legit have a problem. In the mocha, it's always Cafe Brustello or, uh, sorry, I'm not, you're just putting words in here that you know I'm not gonna pronounce. <laughs> Anyways, it's coffee Linux for life. And three coffee names in like eight words, I love it. Jay, you drink more coffee than anybody in this Facebook group. I feel very confident saying that. This is an amazing day in the life. I'm actually like fired up about this because Jay obviously stays on top of news. He is like that dude who's just going, 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 going. So it's like it's like when you like like what day in the life of Schefter type thing or like Shams where you see like how they like go go go. It's like yeah, you need that level of you know fuel to get your stuff going. And Cuban coffee, hundred percent on the money. Any type, you know us, you know born as you know Caucasian gentlemen, right? Anytime we get to experience a little bit of Latino, Latino culture, it blows my mind. Cuban culture is one of those things, especially with the coffee and their food that they drink. Brittany's Cuban, we've talked about this. Oh my goodness, bro. If you, you've, I'm sure you've had Cuban coffee, right? I have not actually. Oh man, it's like imagine uh, espresso, but way tastier. It's just very concentrated coffee. Like don't, don't you'll think to yourself, oh, I had no coffee, I'll have it. it. You're Be prepared to be bouncing around, no matter what level of maturity you're at, because it's strong. Bouncing around in a way where I'm, I'm ready to to go take the field and perhaps impress some next level scouts. Yes. Show that I have the chops to be able to to play strong safety in the SEC. Or are we talking just like bounce around, Connor? Your takes are going to be flying. They're going to be crazier than normal. <laughs> uh, it's borderline a PED. You're probably right about that first part. That's that's what I'm going for. Okay. Yeah. If you if you really feel like if you're on the way to the gym and you see a Cuban uh, coffee shop, go there. You're going to hit all your PRs that day. <laughs> You're essentially selling me pre-workout. Yes. Is, is what Cuban coffee is. All right, I gotta try, gotta try. <clears throat> Chris Milan says, I usually do one cup a day, but on rough days, then two. I cold brew my coffee in advance for the week since uh, that takes the least amount of work when you want it. Yes, he's yep. 100% right. But if I have more than it's French pressed, I do prefer it cold though, especially uh, in warmer months. Nah, to Starbucks in Athens, we got a local chain, Jittery Joe's, mm-hmm. and a few other local brands that dominate the scene and have better flavors. About 1 p.m. or else I won't fall asleep. Yeah, local coffee is a good way to go. Foxtail is our, our local place mm-hmm. that we go to here in Orlando. Um, actually, the client of Lawrence that we've, you know, kind of watched grow from very few locations to all of a sudden having tons and tons of locations all over Orlando. But it's kind of nice to be able to go to a place that you feel like is local to your area, that you feel like you're kind of contributing somewhat at least, even if it is kind of like a local chain or something like that. But there is a a certain like kind of weird satisfaction with finding a place that you like in your specific area, not feeling like you have to go wait in some massive line in Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or something like that. Okay, uh, let's get to 
let's do two more of these. Um, we got a, we got so many responses. Thank you to everybody who responded to this in the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group. Uh, let's do this one from uh, Kelsey Picker. Kelsey says. I love coffee, uh, flavored with too much sugar. <laughs> the limit for cups per day does not exist. Cold 99.98% of the time. Yes to Starbucks because I'm bougie. I could drink coffee and then go to sleep, so I'll drink it anytime, but I tend to not drink it after work. Horror story, on one of our first dates, Emery Picker bought me a hot peppermint mocha coffee from Starbucks to drink on the side to the mountains. I proceeded to spill the entire thing in his Jeep with cloth seats. <laughs> he never did get the smell of uh, spoiled milk out of it. I oh. live that hell, buddy. It's bad. <laughs> so if you, because if it's coffee drink with milk, obviously then that takes on a different life. You can't just get that deep, clean, detailed or something like that. Is there, is there anything worse in the food and beverage department that that you could spill that you're like i'm just i'm not going to be able to get this out this is this is catastrophically bad because it's one thing to spill gasoline in your car or something <laughs> like that if you're like yeah. you know when you got to go you got to go fill up your typical homeowner thing you got to fill up your your gas can or something like yeah. that for your lawnmower and and you know it's maybe a little bit spills in the car something like that. that's most bad but you're kind of like okay this is just I had to do this. I had to be able to get this. I don't feel too bad about this. Mm -hmm. But a food or drink that you've spilled on your car that has made you think to yourself, I, I never want to have that again because I will forever smell this in this vehicle. Anything fish or like crawfish. Like whenever he's, I was eating crawfish with my mom, I was like smelling my hands all day and thinking everything I touch is going to be crawfish flavored. Mm. Interesting. I'd crawfish uh, Etouffee Benedict over the weekend. Yes, from Tibby's. You texted me that. Yeah, is, yes, I, I, I love, love yes, that place, man. Tibby's is Cajun. So approved. good. Yeah, I would let I would let that fall all over my backseat. <laughs> that sounded I don't so care sexual. How that sounds. <laughs> that sounded really bad. How did that? Okay, let's end with uh, let's end with this one from Tristan Page. Tristan says, "How many cups? The limit does not exist." Shout out to Mean Girls. Iced coffee all the way. I don't care if there is snow and ice on the ground, I will get iced coffee. Facts. Starbucks is overrated. I bought a super fancy espresso machine to make lattes at home, but since moving to the PNW, I have fallen in love with the local coffee shops here, and of course, Dutch Bros. Uh, latest in the day, I'll drink coffee is around three to 4 p.m. A lot of relatable things, although for, you, for all you people, Will, you included, mm -hmm. if, if, if caffeine just doesn't work for you anymore, you're just drinking coffee for the love of the game, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you ever think about that? Yeah. You have to. You have to get to a certain a certain point in which you hit your caffeine uh, intake mark for the day, so you don't get a headache later in the day, right? Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, you're just drinking it because you like the taste of it. You're not like necessarily the impact that it has on you. Is that fair? Yeah, I think too, like, you know me, I have ADHD and sometimes I actually do things to manage it. And so sometimes I'm like, if I go downstairs and get a coffee, I'm going to be focused. And then mentally I get that placebo effect mm. that I'm now focused. Good point. Good point. I, uh, I, I hope to not get to that point. And that's why I, I try and, I try and limit my coffee intake a little bit at least. No, mm -hmm. no more than like two drinks a day. Otherwise I just, 
it's it's going to be rough for me. I just know the way that it kind of impacts me. And I've I've had the horror story too, where I've I've taken a nap and then woken up and had coffee at like three o'clock or something. Mm-hmm. And I did that. It was I think I did that like 2016 or something because I was staying up late to be able to to write off of bowl games. And I kid you not, I think I stayed up until like 3:30, which is that's late for your boy. Yeah, that's late. When I was trying to go to bed at like one or something, and ended up going to fall asleep at 3:30. Yeah, so happens to the best of us. One quick thing off of Tristan's thing. She was talking about Dutch Bros. Honestly, maybe the favorite like cup of coffee I've had in my life, and there have been a lot, was I was riding back from the Fiesta Bowl in 2018, and I was I was there with Brady. It was one of the last times, like I can, I can imagine as my childhood, right? 2018 was like the, the end of me being kind of college age. And I, I remember we had gotten like, you know, we'd gone out, done our thing, gotten into it you know, the night before. And I remember being like, hey, my flight leaves, like my flight got changed, like it got moved up. So I thought I'd be sleeping in and, and Brady had to drive me because I was like, oh, I'm gonna stay up. Like I'm, I'm good. Like I'm gonna like, you know, drink a little bit more. And so he ended up having to drive me to the airport because we were on the same flight. And I got moved like basically into his time slot. And we went to Dutch Bros and, and he was driving and he was like driving this rental car. And I was just laid back in this chair, like Jabba the Hutt. And I was just watching the Arizona sunrise after LSU had won this bowl game, just chugging this giant Dutch Bros coffee. And I was like, this is it, bro. Doesn't get better. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee is all about the setting. Yep. The, the ambiance just has to be right. Sometimes, sometimes it takes. Uh, sometimes it takes everything kind of lining up well for that coffee to hit just right. Mm-hmm. You feel like that's that's when it impacts you from the caffeine standpoint, the, the place where you where you want it to be. Kelsey talked about times. mountain coffee. Mountain coffee is always. You're, you're like looking around. You're, you're like a lot more aware yep. in those moments. Man, mountains, am I right? <laughs> this place is breathtaking. This place is unbelievable. We're going to Utah this summer. I might yeah, let's load up on some coffee. Think maximize my I think it's outlawed Utah out there. So. Gosh, better not be. Didn't even think about that. Did not even think about that. Controlled substances. They catch you with more than the bag. You're going straight to jail. So, Yikes. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll make sure that everything we do is cleared by the, the BYU code. That's, that's, that's the level that we achieve here. Shout out to the BYU code. All right. Leave us a five-star review. If you have not, join the Facebook group here named Red on Air with Figuring It Out or Bold and Brush. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.